Hey, y'all, welcome back to a Friday, April 1st, 2022 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. No April Fool's new episode here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, where I wish the Tennessee Volunteers baseball team was playing this weekend. No, they'll be in Nashville uh, taking on the Vanderbilt Commodores with a big series this weekend, but very uh, big bummer that uh, the Vols will not be playing the Commodores here this weekend, uh, but still be able to watch it. Just back-to-back weekends. Old Miss getting swept last weekend by the Vols was great, but that was on the road. This is on the road. Uh, I miss going to Vols baseball games on the weekend, so need that back in my life, but that will be here before you know it. Uh, on today's show, jam-packed. Oh, yeah. Matt Green, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green. We do the full ride at this time every week. Uh, talk all things college football. Um, we talk about our five most intriguing college football teams. Uh, we came up with our own list going into 2022. Had a lot of fun with that. Um, we also got to talk some NASCAR. So Kelly Crandall, a uh, great NASCAR reporter, talked all things NASCAR, Ross Chastain, Chase Elliott, Christopher Bell, the next-gen cars, Denny Hamlin's comments, Bubba Wallace, some new paint schemes, all that and more uh, with Kelly. So that was a lot of fun. Um, also got to talk um, some Wisconsin Badgers. How close was, um, you know, how close was Caleb uh, Williams to becoming a Wisconsin Badger? We get into that with John McNamara of Wisconsin Rivals. Uh, very good website. So you should go check that out if you're a Badger fan or just want to keep up with the Badgers and what's going on there. But uh, we talked about Graham Mertz, Paul Chris, Jim Leonard, um, what to expect in the Big Ten West with them next year. But it was a great conversation and enjoyed John coming on the podcast to talk all things Wisconsin. Um, but yeah, a lot of great stuff here on this edition, the Friday, April 1st edition here on the Chase the Most Podcast. Uh, let me tell you, folks, if you're not already, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcast. Um, if you're already sub- subscribed, though, guess what? Here's another way you can help this show. And if you have not already done so, go ahead and hit that pause button. Go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcasts. You can also watch this very program. Oh, yeah, we're on YouTube. YouTube.com. Type in the Chase Jones Podcast. That's simple. Find it will be the first thing that comes up. Hit that subscribe button. Share it out. All my episodes available in a video format on YouTube. So go check that out today if you have not already done so. Um, HQ, ChaseThomasPodcast.com. Uh, the newsletter, SportsRenaissanceMan.substack.com. SportsRenaissanceMan, that's me. Type your email, that's simple. Follow me on Twitter at Chase double underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. All right. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. You got to start right now. There it goes. Sorry. No, well, sorry. we're going. No, there was like a long pause that uh, as we got started before the red light went off. So this is going to be a different opening to the, the the full ride here on the Chase Thomas podcast. We just jumped right into it because. Both Matt Green and myself were not sure when uh, when the official red light went on for this episode, but we're recording. I think that was something they told you in like journalism school too. like never say like, is this thing on like just mm-hmm. never. But, you know, what, what can you do? Here we are. What is the number one thing you remember from J school at University of North Georgia, Matt Green? What do you remember most? 
oh, rule wise? I don't even I don't even know, man. I just remember just Merrill. Merrill's the <laughs> one thing I remember from uh from journalism school. She was a she was a character. Merrill. So not JKFJ, not Dr. Marker, not uh Dr. Toker. No, no you're see, going. I feel like Merrill, she was the one that had the majority of the journalism classes with. Hmm. Okay. I don't I'm I'm not gonna think about it. That guy hated me. Only teacher that hated me that I that I'm aware of. Hmm. See, that's interesting because I'm pretty sure he really liked me. And I think it was one of those because I was scared of him. You weren't scared of Dr. Johnson. Like that was like one of those things where he could he could sense the fear with me, (sighs) I think. And that like I would go to his office all the time. I remember um for that big paper we had to do with him like that semester long paper where he covered mm-hmm. something like i went to his office like once a week asking him questions about how this worked and this that and the other like i was just that's like, half the battle if teachers know you care that much i feel like that's that's half the battle that's true but i also was terrified that he was gonna fail me because he was such a tough grader where it was like i it was such a big i feel like i don't remember the exact percentage i don't have the syllabus from 2013 in front of me but i want to say that it was something like over 50% of our grade was just that 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 one paper. Yeah. So I was just like, I'm so close to graduating. I think that was my last semester before I graduated. And I was like, I cannot uh, mess this up. So um, I need to make sure what I'm doing every week is, is making sense, but I miss the old Nesbitt building uh, (laughs) soon to be called uh, the Thomas building, the Chase Thomas podcast building. Um, I think Dr. Marker and I can work something out. I, I imagine the University of North Georgia getting my name on that building. Like, I don't know what the the dollar amount that Nesbitt put in there, but I'm I we'll see what happens down the line. That's that's a bucket list thing. By forty, <laughs> I want my name on the North Georgia Journalism School building. I think that's what I want. It's like uh, Gary Gergich mm-hmm. from uh, from Parks and Rec. That's one of mm-hmm. that's one of his goals. It's <laughs> like what. What in your record would ever think that someone <laughs> would name a building after you? Well, speaking of Parks and Rec, do you know what today is, Matt Green? I don't know. Is it, is it Galentine's Day or something? I don't know. No, it's March 31st. Do you remember that episode where uh, she doesn't, uh, oh, April doesn't come meetings. into work? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because she said there's only 30 days in March. That is a, that's a classic right there exactly exactly i missed that show that was another another uh phenomenal top-notch show that nbc comedy lineup on thursday nights with the office (laughs) community parks and rec they were i didn't watch it while it was still while it was on tv i watched it later but yeah it's a it's an all-time show for me it's up there okay matt green how was your week anything new have you gotten into anything new anything new with zeus anything new with maddox tori how is everything on the home front the green the green household (laughs) we're good man just uh, just holding it down, ready for uh, you know I'm I'm in fantasy baseball mode to be honest. I'm um got fantasy baseball drafts coming up next week, so I'm uh that's where, that's where my head is, and of course as well as my head's always on college football because that's that's mm-hmm. what we do here when we talk ball every week. I don't know how you're still doing fantasy baseball. Like we're adults oh, now, man, Matt Green. The, the amount of stuff that you have to keep up with to do, like you're setting your lineup every day, right? Like that's not even just a a once a week type deal with fantasy football. Well, you football. said it in in advance though. So, but yeah, I mean, you're looking at it every day pretty much. Yeah. But fantasy baseball is the best fantasy sport by far. To, to I would ag- I'm, I'm all about it. I would agree because I was in one when I was in high school and I remember it was like the 
dorkiest thing I, I spent a lot of time like obsessing over was like the strategy for that. And like we would have like um it this was in our journalism class. I remember this where it was like we mapped out how we were gonna do this, like how we how the draft was gonna go and who made sense and I was really all in, but the strategy involved in uh, in fantasy baseball because it was more of a marathon, not a sprint. And as a distance runner myself, not to brag, but I run. Um, Do you run around that, the city of Knoxville by any chance? I funny you ask. <laughs> funny, funny you ask, Matt Green. But uh, but I do. Um, I never also, heard you mention it. Yeah. Well, I've also pivoted a little bit, Matt Green. I uh, I've been running with no no music or podcasts so now that the weather taking really in the sounds the sounds yeah. of, of the city so i'm a big frog guy frog sound guy love <laughs> the ribbits <laughs> i've never heard anybody say that <laughs> big frog sound guy please please continue please <laughs> i wanted i'm curious where you're going with that I um okay, this is gonna be some more uh taking taking the the podcast behind the curtain here for my how I how I work every day. And I um throughout the workday, I, I love ASMR. So I listen to ASMR stuff on my on my computer throughout the day. And one of my favorite ASMRs is a swamp. Um so you get the the frog and the the different bug okay. sounds and just the the water moving a little bit and that's just like so soothing i it's just perfect like if i don't feel like i'm in the okie finoki swamp matt green i don't want it <laughs> i'm not even <laughs> sure what to do with that but speaking of the swamp our top five most intriguing teams of the 22 season well we're not getting two season we're not getting there. We're, we're not, not starting there. I'm not jumping. Some... I jumped jumped in too deep. Yeah, you. Hey, shout out to Sum Forty One. You're in too deep, Matt Green. Um, no. Before we get there, Nigel the Nighthawk, our old friend, he had some news to drop off. I um, it's kind of amazing. This is I'm going to group this, but the analyst stuff is out of control, Matt Green. The analyst stuff is just so funny to me. Of like, who's what you, getting? The... What do you mean it's out of control? We've got Georgia Tech out here hire an analyst now they, they've added that to the budget where they've got analysts so jim cheney is now an offensive analyst at the at georgia tech university the georgia institute of technology rather and um then we got todd grantham getting hired as an analyst at the university of alabama so it's just standard operating procedure for alabama though He's, that's true grantham's going to his uh, i know sc shorts did a little video about that a few years ago now that's just aged so well of mm-hmm. Alabama coaching rehabilitation program or whatever. And that's exactly what it is. Like Grantham will probably be a, a DC here in a, in the next few years. I'm sure he'll get another job somewhere. He's got a solid resume, but yeah, I mean, Georgia tech, you know, I can't, <laughs> they're, they're just trying to get in on it. This is what everybody's doing. Having 20, 30 guys on your coaching staff, all these off field coaches, do, do what you got to do. Like Jim Cheney's just trying to be a coach for every single program in the Southeast at some point in his career. I feel like he has, right? Like I would love to do a deep dive into like how many stops he's had because it's probably the number of schools that he has been at least some sort of coach at is just unreal. It's double digits for sure. Um, Dana Holgerson signed an extension 
with uh, the University of Houston that uh, keeps him there throughout 2027. An interesting nugget, the reason I bring that up is um, Stephen Godfrey quote tweeted that and said that he, like when people say that this is my last stop or my last job, he doesn't really believe that. But in this particular instance that he does believe that this is for this particular coach, that this is it for Holgerson, that this extension that he is actually going to finish his coaching career out at Houston, but he's done a solid job, man. And like I, I outlined a few weeks back on the full ride, Houston, they have all the makings of the next Cincinnati uh, Cinderella story this, this upcoming year with Clayton Thune and, uh, and company, because this Houston schedule is quite nice, quite nice. It's true. It's essentially a power five job now. So that's yep. probably like, it's nice for him to say that, but it's also like, would you be saying that if they if they weren't in the Big Twelve? You know, it's like now it's like a legitimate, de- legitimate destination job. Obviously, if they do really well, is he really going to turn down Oklahoma or something? Who really knows? In some sort of hypothetical scenario, but um, but yeah, I think I think we both kind of talked about Houston. Seems kind of like the forgotten, forgotten team that's getting added to the Big Twelve. That like. They're all we've already seen what they are in basketball. Like, I mean, they're a legitimate. I mean, this is back to back Elite Eight. And they went to a Final Four last year. So, and I, I think they have all the makings of a team that can come in and compete in the Big 12, like right when they get there. So, I'm uh, for Holgerson to say this. Who knows if it's really true? Because, yeah, you can say that and something you didn't foresee, an opportunity you didn't foresee happening can come along. So, he's not. He's not young, but he's also not super old either. So I don't know. He's got a lot of time left. So it'd be good for Houston if they can count on, you know, another 10, 15 years, however long he's got left coaching um, of a consistent, good coach. Well, I mean, he did leave a power five job for a group of five job. Like he left West Virginia. He didn't get fired. Like that man left for Houston. Like he was like, I'm good. Right? Yeah, he didn't get fired. He okay. left. So he was like, yeah, there I'm was good. also weird things going on at West Virginia, right? With mm-hmm. like someone so trying to get him fired or something like that there was a i don't know the they were never happy story. with him they were never so, happy with him okay so yeah i mean uh more power to him they got a, a good thing going on i think that's what you, you don't see enough of in college football is just guys that are just solid where they're at you see so many college basketball teams guys get a solid 10 15 years at a program and you you really you rarely see that as much in, in college football well it's time for the the most important news story that I saw this week. So this popped up this morning on my Twitter feed. Did did you see this? Did you hear about this? My Jalen O voice. Seen this? this? Um, Fred Taylor went on a podcast uh, this week. Did you see what Fred Taylor, who is an absolute delight, I will listen to Fred Taylor talk about anything. Um, I did see this. He uh, may or may not have confirmed that there was a duffel bag of cash but it wasn't actually a duffel bag he confirmed it was not that kind of uh, container where the money was stored but there was a rumor back in his recruitment days uh before he went to the university of florida over the university of georgia that uh the folks over there in athens may have uh thrown some money his way to get him to sign with the bulldogs and uh the way the story goes is he kept the money and still signed with the florida gators which is um, one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And also just for the folks who have been concerned about what NIL is going to do, the, the integrity of college football, this happened in 
what year is this? 1997? 94, 94, yeah. He's coming out of high school. Like, this has been going on forever. And that's a lot of money at that point. Like, that's a lot of money getting thrown around. But um, he was, they they said, it, like, was it closer to 30? And he's like, well, it was, it's closer to 50 than it was 30. It, man, I can't believe he was that open about it. But yeah, Fred Taylor dropping no, some bombs. I couldn't bombs. either. But I guess, you know, statute of limitations. I don't know. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's 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 always interesting to hear stories like this because, like like you said, the the for the nil is going to ruin everything. Crowd. It's like maybe it's just going to be above the table now, and it's going to be the same thing that's always happened. So, um, yeah, it, it was definitely interesting to hear him say that. I guess it's like no money, no amount of money can make you choose to play for Ray Golf instead of Steve Spurrier. At the end of the day, I think that's uh, what it comes down to. But um, disappointed to hear it because Fred Taylor. As far as Florida players go, that's probably that might be my all-time favorite Florida player right there. Like he's he's up there, and and here his years with Jacksonville, I was always a I was always a Fred Taylor fan. You weren't a big Keywan Ratliff the guy. Dark ah uh, Keywan Ratliff. See, that's another one. I'm a big I was a big Keywan Ratliff guy. The dark visor. Okay. That's what mm-hmm. uh, separated Fred Taylor. He uh he, he always looked cool. I'm gonna guess you're not a Brandon that's, Spikes guy. Georgia fans did not like Brandon. Spikes. I mean. I respect Brandon Spikes. You can't you can't really say anything about him. But watching him lay on top of no Sean Marino and yell obscenities at him, like I can't be a fan of that guy. No, no. I, Jabbar Gaffney was a cool receiver. Sure. Jabbar Gaffney was a player back in the day. Jabbar Gaffney was a was a bucket. He was a bucket. Uh, Lido Shepard. I think Lido Shepard was a yeah. was a type back then. So there's a there's some always obviously some great Florida players of, of yeah. that year. Um, and we don't have to say anything else, but Aaron Hernandez was all, was always, uh, he was a dynamic athlete, but we don't have to say anything else about it. Oh man. I always go back to that picture. What was it? Tebow Hernandez and somebody else is in that photo. Who was the other guy on that Harvin? team? Was it Harden? I'm trying to think who was it. It wasn't Harvin. It was somebody else from that, that group. play. I mean, with Harvin on the outside. Yeah. A little shovel pass to Aaron Hernandez or Tim Tebow just keeps it like un- unguardable. That play was just unstoppable. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Matt green, uh, last thing, and we'll get into our main event here, but it, uh, we got another Bennett, like the Stetson Bennett family, uh, continues on at the university of Georgia because Stetson's brother (laughs) is walking on in Athens. Do I have that right? I I saw someone who next, uh, national championship winning quarterback right there. I saw someone (laughs) called him because (laughs) because he doesn't look like Stetson at all. Like they don't look like brothers whatsoever, um, which is nothing like your family because the pictures I've seen of you and your brothers, you all look like the, just the identical. Uh, oh, you think so? Oh yeah. Y'all there's no, no question that the three of you are brothers. Like you mm-hmm. would not be able to, uh, to deny that one, but um, That's interesting. yeah. Uh, but no, they called him stepson Bennett, which was funny, and I hope that sticks. <laughs> like stepson That's Bennett, funny. I, like I um, I saw that on my timeline. I I didn't know that that was a related a relation mm. to Stetson, but I kind of assumed it was. Um, but yeah, who knows? Uh, get your get your preferred walk on on, sir. Oh, it was Riley Cooper, by the way, in that photo that I'm talking uh, about. Yeah. Where it's like there oh, is what? definitely uh there's there is a documentary coming out about the that team, isn't there? Is thirty I'm, for I'm, thirty or maybe I've just heard so many people say there should be. I, I swear I heard that there there was gonna be a movie because I mean there's 
there's a lot of storylines there with that with that Florida team on and off the field. I would watch that. Like everyone would watch that. That would be outstanding. I would absolutely watch a documentary. Without a doubt. On that Florida. All era. the players that played on the team. Then you have Cam Newton also like a part <laughs> of everything. Like, yeah, I'd I would uh I'd pay to see it. Absolutely. Uh Matt Green, for this show, for this edition here on the full ride on the Chase Thomas Podcast, I thought this week, because each week during the offseason, we're gonna do a theme. And something I was thinking about this week was the most intriguing teams to me at the moment. And I'm thinking about what they could be in 2022. So we're limiting it, limiting it to what they could be this fall. And what's funny is we each did our own five and we did not have any crossover between our five most intriguing. Yeah. I saw that as well. That's pretty wild. Um, But you are, you are the guest Matt Green. So Let's start with you. Who is your first intriguing team? You mean start at number five? Start at number five and move up. I assume that's how you did it with your most intriguing at one. Yeah, correct? that's what I was thinking. Okay. Um, number five, I went Minnesota. Hmm. So Minnesota is one that's interesting to me because like, this is year six now of P.J. Fleck. You look at the schedule, like Tanner Morgan's back for year six, right? <laughs> so like... We we saw what Tanner Morgan was in 2019. Was it 30 touchdowns, seven picks that year? He's not been anything close to that in 2020 or 2021. But you look at this Minnesota schedule; like they still went nine and four last year with him going. Was it ten touchdowns, nine picks? Mm. Like yeah, and so they still went nine and four. You look at the schedule at Michigan State. At Penn State, like those are the two toughest games I might you might say on the schedule. You got Iowa at Wisconsin as well. That's definitely gonna be one of the tougher ones. And then Iowa at home. But to just get Michigan State and Penn State from the east to not have to play Ohio State or Michigan, I think that's a that's an advantage that that uh Minnesota has. So, you know, you had that eleven and two year in twenty nineteen, and then the COVID year, you kind of throw out the records. At least I do, kind of throw out the records in the Big Ten in twenty twenty. So, and then you you follow that up with a nine and four. So, I feel like they're well positioned to like, depending on which version of Tanner Morgan we get, like they could they could legitimately win the the Big Ten West in twenty twenty two. Hmm. I think they're in the conversation. I think Wisconsin should still be considered the favorite, um, but we'll see what happens there. But the Big Ten West is wide open for them. And like you said, they're going to be – PJ Flex got them – they're a competent team. And Tanner Morgan being there is a huge help to come back. And I think uh, they'll be in the thick of things for sure. Um, my number five, Matt Green, the Michigan Wolverines. So I put them in my top five because they lose both coordinators. They weren't sure if Jim Harbaugh was coming back. Like we were wondering if Josh Gaddis was going to be coaching this team like a month and a half ago. And all this uncertainty where it seemed like it was, um, it was, it seemed the, it was past the point of no return for Jim Harbaugh to return to Ann Arbor. Um, he took the pay cut and then it's like, well, to come back, he's going to, it's just going to be awkward to come back. Like at this point, if you're Jim Harbaugh, like you wouldn't take this many interviews. You wouldn't be this interested if you weren't going back to the NFL. Then he doesn't. And then Jim Harbaugh just returns to Michigan. And we're like, everything's fine. We're going to promote from within. The staff's fine. Like, I got J.J. McCarthy coming in here. 
and we're okay. That being said, speaking of McCarthy, he's no slam dunk to start this year. It could still be Cade McNamara's show. And we just saw what happened in Ann Arbor this past year where it was like, okay, there's a ceiling with Cade McNamara. Like you can't have him in the playoff if you're going to build off what you did last year. You have JJ McCarthy, who's just the IMG, IMG kid who transferred there because of the 2020 COVID stuff out of the state of Illinois. He just has all the talent in the world. He's got to play, but guess what? Ohio state's loaded. Michigan state's loaded. The, they took advantage of a season from hell a little bit from Ohio State. Is there a scenario where Ohio State does not win the Big Ten East in back-to-back years? Is there Was last year a changing of the guard a little bit where the, where the Michigan Wolverines got the monkey off their back where it's like we finally saw, like we saw it. We saw that we could beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. And I wonder what that means to this rivalry and what it means for Jim Harbaugh and this group to know that like, there's no question now. We now know we can beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. We know that we belong on the field with them and that we can compete. The difference in that Georgia game and the playoff game was just the quarterback. Like that just he was not there. And if you're going to compete with those guys, like you're not going to match up five star for five star with a Georgia or an Alabama, but you're close enough where if you have that difference maker at quarterback, you can you can make a game of it. That being said, we don't know. J.J. McCarthy is a huge unknown. We haven't seen enough yet. I just think there are so many different things that I am so fascinated by when it comes to the Michigan Wolverines this year. I am very much excited to see what happens. And if there was a little bit of a changing in the guard last year and Harbaugh coming back, it's like, oh, Michigan should be considered the favorites of the East going forward. And maybe that uh, they are they are the kings now. What What do you think? I definitely don't think they're the Kings of the, the big 10 East. I, I feel like 2021 is going to prove to be kind of the outlier. Like Mm. it definitely changes the Ohio state Michigan rivalry, but it might not change it for, for Michigan's benefit. It might just kind of wake up Ohio state some more like, Hey, we, Mm. we cannot lose to these guys again. I mean, I don't know how many they had straight. Was it like eight, nine in a row before last year? So yeah, I um I they are definitely an intriguing team. I think the quarterback is what makes them the most intriguing, kind of from a um from a Clemson Kelly Bryant perspective. Like hmm. you went to the playoff that year with this quarterback and so obviously saw that this quarterback isn't gonna get you all the way. You know what I mean? So I feel like Clemson almost had that benefit with Kelly Bryant that Trevor Lawrence came in, well. We don't know he's better than Kelly Bryant right now, but we know Kelly Bryant's not good enough to win us a national championship. And it feels like if you just roll the dice because Cade Cade McNamara is obviously limited and just, you know, maybe see what JJ McCarthy can do. That's where they do become really intriguing because then maybe we don't know what the ceiling is on Michigan. If they have a dynamic quarterback, like you're talking about that can potentially elevate them. Yeah, I just, it's so crowded at the top. Like the Big Ten East is just the haves and the have nots. And the Big Ten West is just like, I don't know, Minnesota, you can talk yourself into. You can talk yourself into Purdue. You can talk yourself into Iowa, Wisconsin, even Northwestern, because they're always going to be weird. But like, you just left out Nebraska, sir. Well, I mean, Casey Thompson, you're like, hey, never know. 
they lost a lot of close games. Like, hey, yeah. maybe there is something there. Scott Frost turning the corner. Like, the Big Ten West is just the field of dreams, and the Big Ten East is just the the Goliaths and the the Davids. And I am so curious to see how Penn State, Michigan State, Michigan, and Ohio State battle it out this fall because I think they're all pretty close. And this is like the the I think for those four to be where they're at right now as a program, it's just like the juggernauts of Ryan day, Harbaugh, Tucker and Franklin is just wild that those four coaches are in the same division while you got the big 10 West out there. And Paul Chris being like, life's good. Life's good (laughs) over here. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to win 10 games again. I'm uh, I'm, I'm ready to cruise. I'm ready to cruise once again. I don't know. It's, it's kind of wild. Pretty much. That's why I was kind of trying to find who is that dark horse in the Big Ten West. Like, who is that team that avoids some of the juggernauts <laughs> in the in the East? And it seems like this year, like Wisconsin, I know Wisconsin plays Ohio State this year. And um, I'd have to look. On the road at Ohio State, yeah. And yeah, they play so, at Michigan State, too. And uh, I know Iowa plays Ohio State as well this year. So that'll... And that, that's one thing that can make Ohio State's schedule interesting. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. We shall see, Macarine. We shall see. Um, your number four. Uh, we've talked about him a couple of times on the pod already. The Florida Gators mm. are my number four. So we actually talked about him like, I don't know, that was like a week or two ago, about Emory Jones, transfer, not transferring. Well, he's he's transferred again. And it seems, it seems like this one's going to stick. So... Um, Emory Jones is gone from Florida, which I feel like ultimately is just good because that fan base was going to lose their absolute minds. If, if Emory Jones started the first game of the season, like they just, they would riot. So I'm really Mm -hmm. curious to see how the Jack Miller, Anthony Richardson thing plays out. You'd have to think Anthony Richardson has, has a, uh, an edge there, but I think there's also some injury issues there as well going into spring. So Jack Miller might be able to like have the edge, which would just be kind of kind of crazy to from where Florida was like three or four months ago. But um, the reason Florida is so interesting to me, their last four head coaches in their first year went 10 and three, 10 and four, seven and six and nine and three. So that's a lot of success for first year head coaches you know, one of those is after Steve Spurrier. Actually, the worst one was after Urban Meyer left. So it, hmm. interestingly enough, so it doesn't necessarily have to be left on a great note for the next guy to just come in. And we just know how much talent the University of Florida just typically has and the state of Florida just typically has. So like, I think Florida is going to be a really interesting team to see. Is it is it a legit just full out rebuild or is this more like, McElwain to Dan Mullen where you know the the consensus is kind of that they gave up on Jim McElwain that the team wasn't putting forth the effort so is that kind of what was also happening with Dan Mullen is there more talent than the seven and six are they six and seven or they finished seven and six they finished six and seven right I think um, that's right who do they play in the bowl game I just I blocked that out there there could be more talent. Let me see. I got it right. Yeah, they did finish six and seven. So mm. could be more talent than the six and seven record suggests. So I'm curious to see what Florida is next year. And the schedule is not easy with Utah at home, 
going at a and m and uh and always playing lsu uh from the west so they'll and obviously georgia and tennessee in the east they have utah at home this year they do that's wild that's a yeah, good that's and opener and yeah, it's not it's a actually, neutral cider. Actually, gave the, yeah, I think I don't know if they're going next year to, at Utah, but yeah, it is a home and home. Are we calling this Urban Meyer Classic? You know, that never even occurred to me. I don't know how I, I didn't think about that. I wonder if that's what happened where they booked it because you know how far in advance they book these games. I wonder if that was a game that was booked by Urban's era <laughs> at Florida like 15 years ago. Uh, who who knows how far out they uh, they book these games. I'm excited. I didn't know that was on the calendar for this fall. That's going to be a fun one, man. That is going to be a fun one. Um, well, I like it's that also pick. the kind of game like if Florida wins that, like we don't know necessarily how good Utah is right now, but that's the kind of game that your first year head coach wins that to open the season. Like that can just create some positive momentum. And we don't want that in Gainesville. I, for <laughs> one, uh, would prefer uh, a lack thereof, if uh, if you will. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. Like Jack Miller, it seems like he does have a realistic shot at winning that job. Um, but it would be, I, it, it does feel like the fans all want Anthony Richardson where it's like, if we don't get Richardson, we riot type deal. But then there are some folks, it, there's going to be like this Joe Burrow thing where it's like any 100%. Ohio state, like any Ohio state quarterback who doesn't win the job in, in Columbus and then transfers to an SEC school. It's like, Hey, this, this feels like Joe Burrow, this, they're doing some at sniffs. the same time, though, I, mm-hmm. I can't hate on anyone who who would jump to that conclusion because Joe Burrow was sitting behind Dwayne Haskins, right? Who mm-hmm. threw 50 touchdowns. Like, if you're sitting behind CJ Stroud, this guy was Bryce Young won the highest man, but you could argue CJ Stroud was the best quarterback in college football last year. So I, it's definitely going to be a, a homer take to, to throw out the Joe Burrow stuff, but. You would only you would only be suicidal as a Florida fan or or on the edge of rioting if Emory Jones is the guy. I think if Jack Miller comes in, it's like you could think he put like he showed out and he won the job. Or the same thing with Anthony Richardson. Whoever whoever wins the job actually had to earn it. Whereas it felt like if if you end up with Emory Jones, it's just because all of these guys are terrible and we're gonna go with the guy that's got the most experience. So I um I'm yeah I'm really intrigued by what the Jack Miller Anthony Richardson thing could be. Um, well we'll see what happens in Gainesville, but I'm also curious because Emory and JT are still on the market, right? They haven't committed yet where they're playing football. That's true. Um, but we'll see, we'll see. Um, next up, my number four, the Miami Hurricanes. So mm. the reason I have them as in- intriguing is that like everything about Miami that I like is two to three years from now where I am curious like how they navigate this intermediary period because Tyler Van Dyke is, I've, I've seen a lot of different draft boards that he's like the number three quarterback prospect uh, for the 2023 class. And you're like, Oh, so if Van Dyke's legit and crystal balls there and you got Josh Caddis from Michigan, you pull uh, your guy from Georgia as a DB's coach. You got Kevin Steele coaching linebackers. You got, or uh, excuse me, DC. And then you got Charlie strong coaching linebackers rather You've got talent all over the board. Cristobal has just put together an all-time great staff there, but I'm curious, like, he might, <laughs> this might be something that it happens faster than other places just because they might have the quarterback in place where it's like, oh, 
you don't have to do the seven and six, just kind of like get right year in Miami. You might be able to just expedite this thing and you're just you're humming it and you're playing in the ACC title game and you're one because Van Dyke is that good. If Van Dyke is a Heisman type quarterback, that is a huge thing for Miami because we're just I, I shouldn't even say the collective we there, but for myself, like I'm excited about where Miami's going and like I feel vindicated because I've said on this podcast and I've said to family and friends where I'm like of the three schools powerhouses, I was like, Miami's always had the most upside. Like Miami of Florida and Florida state, like they should be the cream of the crop, like better, the best area. If you're a Florida kid, you should want to go live in Miami, go play in Miami, the ACC schedule, all that kind of stuff. It's the coolest university in the state of Florida. Like there's all kinds of reasons that Miami should not be the cream of the crop. They have a lot of money, private school, all that kind of stuff that like, no, Miami should be the best of the three traditionally year over year. Um, And we're going to see because they pumped a lot of money into this program. And that will be, that'll be seen later on. But I'm just so curious to see because the ACC is wide open, Matt Green. Wide freaking open. When that's Wake what Forest, I was going to yeah. add. That's what I was going to add to what you were saying uh, to your formula to begin with was all everything you said, and then you also have a wide open ACC right now. Like mm-hmm. you just said, Pittsburgh and Wake Forest in the ACC championship. Like, who's the best team in the? Who's the next best team in the coastal next year? Is it? Is it Pitt? Is it Virginia Tech? North Carolina? Like, there's no reason Miami couldn't play for the ACC. ACC championship next year. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a, I think that's a good call. And I, I got, I'm glad you didn't put me on the spot because I would not have been able to tell you which one's the coastal and which one's the Atlantic. <laughs> I had so. it pulled up right here. That's why I, uh, at the Atlantic, you had, you, that's where you get Clemson, NC state, wake forest, uh, as you know, Florida state. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I wonder if even the coaches, like I would love to get, like I like I get a lot of these coaches now on this podcast. I want to now put them on the spot. Like I want to get an ACC coach and be like, off top of your head, North Carolina, which division are they in? Like just to see, even if they know, <laughs> that would be pretty good. Well, who he play for? Actually, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, Matt Green, where are we going next? Who's your number three? All right, my number three is Notre Dame. Mm. So, what makes Notre Dame intriguing to me? Over the last five years, like everyone loves to hate on Notre Dame, right? That they're just overrated, don't plan a conference, all that every year. They've been like the model of consistency over like the last five years. Like they're 54 and 10. That's almost 11 and 2 every season over the last five years. So two college football playoff appearances. So we have this idea of what just. And we also kind of take it for granted, too. We don't even think last year's Notre Dame team was even really good. And they went, what, 10 and ten and 2, or I'm not yeah. even sure what their final record was. Um, we so were I putting think, them at, like, the playoff. They were uh, a, a a game going their way, like, where they were just yeah. going to – they were going to backdoor their way into the playoff last year. I don't know, yeah, if year. Georgia beats Alabama then in the SC Championship, then Notre Dame might have been in the playoffs. So – I think we've kind of we're t- kind of taking that success for granted right now because if you look at the schedule in 2022, like Marcus Freeman's going to come in year one as a guy, you know, taking over a well-oiled machine. You got to go at Ohio State, at North Carolina, at USC next year, Clemson and BYU both at home. 
Like it might not just be the roll out of bed, go 10 and two, 11 and two for Notre Dame next year. And I wonder how like a bad year one at Florida at a Tennessee it's acceptable, right? It's like, well, you, you're coming in, you're rebuilding. Like a bad year one at Notre Dame, it's like, well, everything's here. Everything's in place. The offensive coordinator stayed for you to stay to because he played here. You know, it's like this is a destination job to him. So I wonder if we see Notre Dame go eight and four next year, if there's going to be a little more pressure on Marcus Freeman heading into year two, even though he is just a first year head coach. Well, they got the good transfer from Northwestern to fill the Kyle Hamilton role. So they got that safety. The defense looks good. He he kept the strong recruiting class together. So that will be helpful. Uh, even with a eight and four type year, like if the recruiting strong, that is something that will buoy him a little bit for a couple of years. But I agree with you that I think Notre Dame fans are a little too sure of the Marcus Freeman hire, where it's like if I'm a South Bend uh, super fan, I mean, I don't know how you wouldn't have wanted fickle over Freeman. Like if that was the choice and that was an opportunity, like fickle would have won immediately. And just the head coaching experience where like, we know what Luke fickle is at Cincinnati. We don't know yet with Marcus Freeman. We just know that he is a up and coming star, but is Freeman one of those guys who can immediately transition to the CEO coach? without having another head coaching job first to like a Cincinnati type job for a couple of years and then get the Notre Dame job? Or is he someone that can immediately take over and be that guy? And I think it's fair to wonder if Freeman's up to that. Like he can recruit. We know he'll recruit, but it's like Brian Kelly recruited, but Brian Kelly won a crap ton of games. He went to multiple playoffs. Like that dude won so much at Notre Dame. You can make the case that he was the most consistent Notre Dame head coach of yeah. all time. Like and of I, all I time. Think I, I think the early signing day, the college ball calendar that we always talk about, I think that played such a huge role because you couldn't get Luke Fickle. Like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Luke Fickle would have listened to Notre Dame, but he had a team playing in the college ball playoff and mid December, he, he was worried about his team. He was not going to go to Notre Dame. So it felt like a rushed move to keep continuity. Let's keep this recruiting class together. Let's, you know, everything's positive. Like, yeah, let's just, let's not worry about it. Let's just keep keep our <laughs> head down, keep moving, you know? And we've seen so many different defensive coordinators from, you've seen what Kirby Smart can do, and you've seen what a Mel Tucker can do, and you've also seen what a Will Muschamp can do as, as a head coach. So, you, you have no idea really what Marcus Freeman is going to be as a head coach. And you would have to think someone like Notre Dame, they, they could have gotten somebody with just a, a long track record of proven head coaching success. And they went the route of the, the unknown. Maybe he's the next great young coach. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. It, uh, it, it remains to be seen. It is interesting for him to, uh, to be playing at Ohio State as alma mater so so early in his tenure is that the is that the first game? I, I want to say, it's, say the it's the first. Yeah, it's first or second. I know that that's going to be bonkers, but yeah, and I mean he's got a quarterback situation to resolve immediately, like the Buckner versus Drew Pine quarterback battle, and he's got to get that right out of the gate. Um, number three for me, it is a uh, yeah. is the season opener. Okay. Um, 
you know we got BYU on the road as our season opener next year. Not this upcoming year, but Ooh, next on year. On the road. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Provo. Might have to make a trip out for that. Um Oklahoma. Or excuse me, that's some already. Sorry, spoiler. Uh Georgia is my number three, Matt Green. So mm. both of our teams fell on each other's list, which is funny to me. But I uh I included Georgia because we've talked about this a little bit where we did a special show on like what George is going to be without the defense. And we know with Walker, with Davis, with uh, so many dudes who have moved on to the NFL on that defense and just the amount of talent that they're going to have to replace, but they have talent to replace them. But a lot of, a lot of change, a lot of, a lot of change. The defensive coordinator now gone um, defensive backs coach now gone. Uh, it's just a lot of, a lot of turnover for a team that just won a national title and Stetson's back. Like, what does it look like uh, with another full season of Stetson? If the defense is number 11 in the country, instead of number one, what does it look like if they're number nine, even, and he's in a shootout a couple of weeks. Like, what does that look like? Does Georgia, do Georgia fans get antsy more so this year because the defense isn't as good. And Stetson's a little bit more rocky because uh, maybe the, the, the departure of Matt Luke, hurts the offensive line. Maybe that's something that uh, could be a problem this upcoming year, but I am, I am just curious to see how they, how they come back. Cause I think this is a team that you could tell me wins the national title in back to back years. And I wouldn't be all that surprised, but if you were to tell me that it goes awry a little bit. And when I say awry, like 10 and two, nine and three, maybe, and there's a quarterback change mid year because the defense just, doesn't have it or the must champ factor he's not great and there's like some issues with the co dc stuff or i don't know like i i am curious to see if last year was like a turning point and like they're now in alabama where it's just going to be a consistent juggernaut where they're winning 10 11 games winning the east and they're just going to keep this thing humming regardless of the dan lannings and the stuff like that turning over because nick saban deals with this every year the turnover and it's just like they never miss a beat. It doesn't matter who's in out. Like it does not matter. And I am so fascinated to see if that's going to be Georgia with Kirby smart, where it's like, you're now dealing with a bunch of turnover. You're dealing with the fact that you just won. You got to get these guys psyched up to do it all over again. Stetson's no longer an underdog story. You're now a defending champ. Like this is a different, different world for Georgia. You're now getting everybody's a game. You're like the target is on your back where it's like, you just won the national title. You want to be Bama? Guess what? Talk to Nick Saban. Nick Saban talked about this in a press conference in November where he got super upset uh, about people complaining about how much he was winning by. And he's like, when I got to Alabama, we weren't, you were just happy to win games. Now you're concerned with how much, like how many points we're winning by. We're getting everybody's A game. And I, I love listening to Nick Saban. Shout out to Nick Saban. But he uh, he's absolutely right. And I think that is something that Georgia fans are now going to do it. Where it's like, is there going to be the the Georgia fan who's like, do we really beat Tennessee 35-34? We should be beating them 35-7. And I, I wonder if that starts to pop up a little bit where it's like, yeah, you still won though. Like you're 11-1. and one. What are you complaining about? Like you're you're still dominating. So I'm throwing a lot at you, but that's that's kind of where I'm, I'm at. Is that a fair assessment for Georgia at the moment? Um, like you said, you, uh, you threw a lot at me there. (laughs) Um, I think one thing I am interested in is like that you pointed out that is Georgia one of these true powerhouses now that they're going to be a national title contender every single year, or was it a perfect storm that 
this team was a national title contender. Maybe you go back to being 10 and two in a down year. Um, you've seen what this that's two, two 11 and one or my, there was three straight uh, one loss regular seasons for Kirby smart from 2017 to 2019. And then last year was an undefeated uh, regular season. So it feels like Georgia is that, that team that's at least, that's at worst a two loss team. Like it feels like they're at least at that level now. Um, I, I feel like Georgia is going to be a little worse next year, but I'm not sure they have the schedule to really expose it, to be honest. Like I think if Tennessee was a road game in 2022, I think that game would be being circled like we circled Texas A&M hosting Alabama in 2021. Like that was going to be every single t- person's upset pick or just pick for like, this is going to be the rowdiest environment of in the college football season. I think that would be a perfect storm for Tennessee to, to have an upset. But for that Tennessee game, which who I think is going to be the second best team in the East this year, for that to be at home, you know, that makes that game a little bit easier. And, you know, one of the things you've seen Kirby Smart struggle with the most is playing SEC West teams on the road. And this year that would be at Mississippi State. You know, Mississippi State is that ultimate wild card team that, you know, they're going to pop up and beat some teams this year. You don't really know. You're not really going to predict them to beat them and you don't really know which ones they're going to do it. So Mississippi State's a, a tricky game, but that's not that's not Texas A&M. That's not LSU. It's not Alabama. You know what I mean? So it feels just like a very a, a down year for Auburn, too most likely, but who really knows what Auburn's going to be every year. So I, the, the opener versus Oregon is interesting because that's going to be a, a highly, highly uh, hyped up uh, neutral sided game. But I, I just don't know how many great teams are on this Georgia schedule. So I, I kind of see this team, even if they do take a step back, I see them being, you know, a one loss SEC East champion and, the potential to go to the playoff if they win the SEC championship. I, I don't think probably in the same way that they had the potential to make it in 2019 playing LSU. Like, yeah, you're technically a contender because you could win and get in the playoff, but no one really thinks you're going to beat Alabama this year. So, you know, who knows? Georgia could be right back to, you know, being the exact same type of team they were last year. I, I see a little bit, I could see them being better on offense. With Stetson, I think it's interesting so far in spring. It seems like Kirby is giving Brock, uh, Vandergriff, and Carson Beck both kind of the opportunity to beat out Stetson Bennett because I think that's that's what that's the why you bring in all these big time prospects, you know. So I think Stetson Bennett, Georgia has the the security and knowing that Stetson Bennett is a solid quarterback. So if if one of these guys is going to be a star put them in and let them be a star. But at the end of the day, they might not be better than sets and Bennett. And some people might think that's an indictment on the quarterback room, but I feel like it's probably because Stetson Bennett never gives really enough credit. Like, I mean, he's not a superstar, but like the guy played, played a good quarterback last year, you know, like he, he got good product. Georgia got good production from that position. All right. Uh, you're number two, Matt Green. I'm going to get mad about this. I can already feel it. Number two, I have your Tennessee Vols Mm. because I think this is a crucial season for Tennessee. 
I think it's crucial in not result, but it just in perception. Like hmm. if I, I look at Tennessee's schedule and, you know, for all the talk about Florida and what Dan Mullen was and everything, like they beat Tennessee handedly last year, you know, like that game wasn't really close. So it's interesting while Tennessee feels so much better than Florida right now, if Tennessee loses to Florida and Knoxville, that's just going to completely derail all of the momentum, just deflate the entire fan base. In my opinion, like I think Tennessee, and then you have the bye week and then you go at LSU, which at LSU is, is far from just a, you know, a guaranteed win, you know, but I think if Tennessee can start five and O this year, which that includes at Pittsburgh week two, Florida at home, and then Tennessee on the road or LSU on the road, excuse me. If Florida, if Tennessee starts five and O this year, I think, and then the, the sixth game is Alabama. If they start five and O, I think the season is a success because the Alabama game is going to be national broadcast. Like, you know, college game day, it's going to be a huge deal. It's going to be a top 10 matchup likely. Like that's, that's the first step is just being in those games and people seeing you like and being relevant, you know? And so I think they need to create a buzz about themselves. Just having Alabama and Georgia on the schedule every year is just, it's just a dark cloud that hangs over Tennessee football, right? So you can't expect them to necessarily beat Alabama and Tennessee year two of Hypo. But if you're, if you're beating everyone else, like, I mean, you look at the schedule, I think they could legitimately be favored in 10 of the 12 games this year, minus Georgia and Alabama, basically. So I think this is just a a crucial year to show progress. And I think the best way you do that is just beating everyone else that you should be. I think they have to split LSU, Florida. I think you can lose to Florida if you beat LSU on the road. Um, Tennessee fans know how Florida works and like how this rivalry is just dumb and that Tennessee, Florida, what for whatever reason, like we all like part of the issue with Florida is it's always early in the season. Like we just would kill to get Florida in November, December. If we could flip that on the calendar, I think this rivalry looks a lot different, especially last year. Like if you saw, like we played Florida when you were still just figuring it out with Hendon Hooker. But it's like if we played Florida at towards the end of the year, based on what we saw with Emory Jones, because you talked about that game not being close. That game came down to like Tennessee had no answer for the uh, Emory Jones runs like he would just when things broke down, he would just scamper for 15 yards and just kill Tennessee's defense. like Ole Miss did the same thing just to a better extent with Matt Corral. We're like Tennessee played a great game against Ole Miss, but it was like Matt Corral when things broke down was like, all right, I'm going to go get us another first down over and over and over again. And it was just, it was, it was a problem. So I hope that gets cleaned up this year with Tim Banks's crew. But I, I think there's so much optimism. I, I get what you're saying where you have to build off this and they need to win a lot of games this year. I think they'll beat Pitt on the road. Um, I think that this is a situation where, Nico's locked in now. Like Nico is coming. And that like once the NIL stuff's there, like I'm not worried. Like it's not like we have to go 10 and 2 to keep Nico happy. Like that's it's not a thing. So I think the 2023 class will be fine even if they go 8 and 4 with a tough schedule. Like if they pull that off, I think they're still fine. There's still momentum. Um I'd be I would feel better if Isaiah Nair was uh still a Tennessee Vol in the transfer portal like 
him just getting compared to Jameson Williams just broke broke me in a lot of different ways where I'm like, oh my God, if you put Isaiah Nair in this offense, like with Cedric Tillman and company, I just, I don't know what you do. Um, all that being said, Hendon Hooker, good Heisman odds. He should be great. 31 touchdowns, three picks last year. Tennessee's, they've got to split LSU, Florida. And then if, I mean, they took Bama three quarters last year on the road in Tuscaloosa. Like if you're taking Bama to the fourth quarter at home, and it's a situation where like Bryce Young's got to do some late game heroics, like what he did against Auburn last year. That's a win. Even if you lose that game, that's a win. If you can take that the fourth quarter, if you're in the Georgia game in the fourth quarter, instead of just the first half, if you expand on that, even with a loss in the road and Georgia beats you late with some heroics, or they even just break away midway through the fourth or something, that is a huge step forward. So I don't think it will come down to necessarily wins and losses. It's like how they might lose or how they might go. But I don't know. I, I'm feeling pretty good. I still think this is a sneaky, more difficult schedule than folks are giving Tennessee credit for. So I think something that we should look out for is Tennessee is going to be a lot better than the record shows. See, that's possible for sure. I think... Um it's just the timing of it, like mm-hmm. of at LSU. It's just, it's just a perfect year to get at LSU. It seems like you have to take advantage of it this year. And I guess that's, that's really what I mean. And then Florida, just, just the fact that Florida has just been better than Tennessee, right? How many coaches they fired and, you know, they get right back to competing for the SEC East when Tennessee really hasn't. So it seems like they have to have a year where they're clearly better than Florida just for their, I don't know, their, their mental state, like just, okay, we were better than Florida this year. We can be better than them moving forward. It feels like, I, I don't, yeah, the, you're, like you said, you at, at least at the very least you have to split the, the Florida and LSU game. But I think if you're actually undefeated five and zero. Oh, going into that Alabama game, like that's a legitimate top 10 matchup right there. And I, I think you just, you can't under, you can't understate just how big that is for the program to have the national game that all the recruits want to be at. And that's your game on your campus. I think that's, that would just go just so far and already having a five-star quarterback probably also on campus helping you recruit. So um, I think it's, how they start the year, I think, is very big. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll see. But like you we'll said, eight and four. They go eight and four, and the and the the the, the ship's still moving in the right direction. For sure. Uh, number two on my list, the Oklahoma Sooners. Dylan Gabriel was in in front of the media today, and um, listening to him talk about this program. But a lot of turnover. Brent Vittables has never been a head coach. Um, the Big Twelve's winnable. Oklahoma had a down year this past year. Um, Oklahoma state made some significant strides. They bring in Derek Mason to run the defense with Jim Knowles, taking the DC job in Columbus Baylor ahead of schedule with Dave Aranda. Like he completely flipped the script after, uh, the disaster with Larry Fedora's as OC in year one, he goes to Jeff Grimes from BYU. Everything's different. They're moving in the right direction right there for the college football playoff. Does he get right? does he just jump right in? Like, I am very curious to see what Oklahoma looks like with Brent Venables. Like, does this just, is it a seamless fit? Is there no awkward? Is it like a six and six type year? And it's going to take some time for Brent Venables to get used to 
being a head coach, is Jeff Lebby a slam dunk? Do they have some differences with Lebby and Venables? I don't know. Um, they're going to score a lot. And Dylan Gabriel is someone who plays in a tempo, tempo, tempo guy. He was a, he was a hype man uh, early on in Orlando. And what if Brent Venables is like, I, I don't want this. I, I don't want this kind of style with uh, what we did at Clemson. And I want to protect my defense. And I don't know. Like it's, it's a very different situation than what it was with Lincoln. And I guess it could go more like Bob Stoops. Like that's the hope is he's just the next Bob Stoops there. But like, I don't know. Oklahoma had a down year. They lost a bunch of talent in the portal. Gabriel has injury concerns. Like I, I am curious because they don't have, they don't have the kind of depth that they usually do. And I, I'm just so curious to see if they are able to just bounce right back to the top of the big 12 or Oklahoma state and Baylor. Uh, they just repeat and they're like, no, this is our conference now, Oklahoma. Yeah, that's a good point because I feel like we kind of talked about Notre Dame kind of taking them for granted on what they are every year. Like Oklahoma is even more so. Like they just mm. every single year they're they're 12 and 2 winning the Big 12. So it was a really weird year for them to not for them to not even be in the Big 12 championship. So mm. yeah, and and then the to to mix that in with the with the first year head coach as well. So yeah, I um I wouldn't be shocked, you know, if they're the big 12 champions next year, but I, I kind of think they're going to take a step back and we could see, you know, Oklahoma state and, and Baylor again, although they do have both of them at home this year. Um, and then maybe this is the year that Texas can, can take a step forward. So yeah, they, they are very, definitely a, a very intriguing team in 2022. Well, we'll see what happens. Your number one, Matt Green, who do you got? My number one is the people who tried to trademark the word the, which I'll just never get over that. <laughs> the Ohio State Buckeyes. I um I'm wondering when the uh when does when does Ryan Day become the the college football coach under the most pressure? Is this is this a year? Like we, you know, we've seen like 2014, that was Ohio State's last national championship. We've seen him finish top six every year since then. Ryan Day's got two college football playoff appearances. But um, after seeing Michigan win the Big Ten last year, like they're obviously, they seem like the most talented team in college football. Like you, you usually say, like, other than Alabama, they're the most talented. Like, including Alabama, Ohio State may be the most talented team in college football. Like if they got in the playoff last year, they might could have won the whole thing, you know? So it, you don't really know. Like CJ Stroud, and for my money, is probably the best quarterback in college football. Travion Henderson might be the best running oh, back. Oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Best college. You think he's better than Bryce Young? You have him ahead of Bryce? I think he might be, honestly. Like, You're I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. I mean, you look at the numbers. I mean, they're almost, they're almost identical. Like CJ Stroud... Give me you know, future Falcon Bryce Young, actually. He's got some great wide receivers that are that are helping him as well. But um, you know, Smith and Jigba is still there. So Ohio State is just so loaded. It's it's gonna be a huge indictment on Ohio State if they're not in the college football playoff this year. And I would say if they don't make the national championship game this year, you could argue that it's a failure. Like this, it just feels so much like Ohio State, Alabama, and everybody else right now this to me this year coming into 2022. 
Matt Green, I have one question for you on Ohio State. What's that? When did Ryan when did Ryan Day lose his first Big Ten game? Was it Michigan? Was that the first one? That was his first Big Ten loss since he's been the head coach. No, for sure. He's had a lot of success, but the man is not in the hot seat. There's no, no pressure. We're not, we're not talking about the hot seat. Where Kirby Smart wasn't on hot seat talk going into last mm-hmm. year, but he was the coach under the most pressure, arguably okay. in all of college football, because doing great is one thing. Having 11, 12 win seasons is great. Ohio State is thinking national championship, probably more than any other program minus Alabama. Ohio State can truly be on that national championship or bust mindset every single year, which would kind of like lead you to say that every year since 2015 has been a failure for Ohio state. Like even though they finished top six, all of those years, they're just one of those few programs that is legitimately national championship or bust. Mm. I don't know. I just think I can't speak for Ohio state fans, Ohio state fans, but I think, the goal should not be national titles every year. Unless you're Alabama, it should be playoff every year. Like that should be the goal for Ohio or the standard at Ohio state. It's like, if we did not make the playoff this year, then we messed up. Like whatever happens, happens come playoff time. Like with Bama, Georgia, whatever, like LSU, a dominant Clemson team, whatever. Like if we are in there, like we just need to be in it every year. Like we have too much talent. We spend too much money. We have too many resources for us not to be at least in the final four every year. Um, well, and I think to your point this year specifically too, like Ohio state has a lot of years where you circle like two games on their 12 game schedule. And it's like, they need to win these two to get in the playoff. So this mm-hmm. year specifically, like having Iowa and Wisconsin from the West and having Notre Dame on the schedule, as well as, you know, the opponents in the big 10 East, just getting to the playoff, you know, you could be looking at, you know, four or five top 15 wins. So I, I, I can I can give you a little more leeway there. Yeah, I don't know. Ohio State fans, just enjoy it, man. Like, your team's a powerhouse. Like, don't put pressure on Ryan Day. Like, he's going to eventually win a title, probably, as long as he's there. Unless he does, unless he takes, like, the Bears job or something um, in a couple of years. Like, let just, just be grateful for where you're at right now. Because it could have gone way worse post-Urban Meyer. No, that's definitely true. But I think that the Urban Meyer part is part of it. It's like you were handed the the keys to a Ferrari and it's like, we still have a Ferrari, but you know, we, we wanted to upgrade. I don't know that it's not the best analogy. I I, I don't know where I was going. What's with the, the upgrade over Ferrari? Yeah. But um, uh, it's like, you just, you haven't gotten to the finish line essentially. Like Ohio State, you were just you were handed a program that was just so ready ready to win a national championship, and they still are right in that ready to win a national championship. No one's saying to fire Ryan Day, but at some point the pressure does start to get you know kicked up a notch, and I think that's where I feel like just winning a going to the playoff is one thing, but it's like you get embarrassed like Michigan got in the first round of the playoff, which Ohio State you know hasn't their 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 game with clemson was close their national championship with alabama they got beat pretty handedly but it was also the national championship game so they had a win in the playoff i think that's where it just becomes very uh lincoln riley oklahoma-esque is where you're getting there 
But then when you actually get on that stage, you're getting blown out just about every time. I think that's that's when the pressure can increase. That's not what has happened with Ohio State yet. But that's why I feel like just getting to the playoff isn't quite good enough at Ohio State. It's good enough at Michigan, but it's Ohio State. You need to at least at least get a one win on that stage. They got time and they got the talent. I think they'll be all right. I, I've seen these recruiting classes. I think they're going to get a couple more bites of the apple with Ryan Day before it's all said and done. Um, but we'll see. Your, your point so is well, well taken. I would think so as well. Your point is well taken. Um, my number one as we wrap up here on this edition of the full ride. Oregon, your old friend, Dan Lanning. They're my number one most intriguing team. And I think it's because Bo Nix is in the building. Yet Kenny Dillingham making the making the move out west to be the OC, leaving Florida State late in the cycle. Um, Mario Cristobal had this group where like, it's easy to forget just how quickly the news cycle just moves. And I don't know if you seem to recall, like people were like, Oregon should be the playoff team, the next team to make the playoff in uh, the Pac-12, where it's like, Oh yeah, like Oregon's a playoff team. Like people are talking to themselves and Anthony Brown should be good enough to get them there. Like he should be fine. Like I don't think they'll win, but Pac-12 is bad. He sh- the Oregon Ducks should should do it. Like the Oregon Ducks not making the playoff after beating Ohio State last year was like monumental because they were like, "Oh, they beat Ohio State. This is a playoff team. Like Oregon has this straight shot." Yeah. People were putting them up there even though they didn't actually believe it. Just because Correct. they beat Ohio State, they just like you had to put them up there. And Dan Lanning's never been a head coach before. And now he's walking into the Pac-12 where the talent's still there. Like, Oregon's got talent everywhere. And sure, losing Kayvon Thibodeau will hurt a little bit. But, man, Bo Nix being the wild card that he is and Oregon going into the Pac-12 and Dan Lanning just being a huge unknown on this front, I just I think they're the most fascinating team in college football to me in 2022 because... I could see them like landing. If he's a slam dunk guy, it's like the Mel Tucker thing where this, this group just gets moving and you're like, Oh, this is going to be a machine sooner rather than later. And you know, Bo Nix, does he expedite or does he, um, yeah, expedite the process in terms of their rebuild where it's like, Oh, it's a Tyler Van Dyke thing. Like crystal ball goes to Miami, Tyler Van Dyke's right there. Does it change the, change the timeline a little bit does the timeline change for dan lanning where he doesn't have to do the kirby smart seven six type first year statement where it's like you've got enough talent the pac-12 not great <laughs> again this upcoming year um i don't think it's looking all that great um a lot of rebuilding teams a lot of new faces in the pac-12 north um both u-dub and the kooks have new coaches um I don't know, man. I just think that they are in prime position to kind of overachieve. And I just Bo Nix, you can never quit. And Bo Nix out of the SEC in the Pac-12, it's like, does he realize his potential out West away from scrutiny? I don't know, man. Like, I just I can't stop thinking about what they're going to be in 2022. Because you could tell me they're a playoff team and you could tell them that it it is a mess. Bo Nix is not good. And this team's like seven and six at the end of the year you could tell me yeah both. first of all they better not go seven and six i like that will not be a good it'll be hard like it's first year you know maybe you'll learn a new system and like and that sort of thing it's gonna be hard to justify a seven and six down year because like oregon just has had so few years like that uh obviously that you know the the mark helfrich the last couple of years of mark helfrich for uh willie taggart those years weren't great but 
Um, I don't know. I don't know about Oregon. Looking at their schedule, I also have heard that um, in spring that Ty Thompson has been getting some hmm. first-team looks over Bo Nix. So I'm not sure how, what to think about that. I feel like Bo Nix seems like a guy who's got talent, and while he wasn't great at Auburn, I would think he'd be good enough to win the starting job at Oregon. But um, the biggest thing I worry about on their schedule, they got Utah. They got Utah again on the schedule, and man, are, is it is it going to be different the next time? Like Utah's <laughs> just beating them like they stole something, like thirty eight seven and thirty eight ten. Like they got to get more Utah, so I, it's hard to it's hard to see them getting past that one. But um, no, that one is at home this year. But they have a BYU at home. Um, that that should be interesting. So it. it some some favorable home games on their schedule, so that's good. But obviously the uh, the neutral sided uh, Georgia game to start the year, most wouldn't assume that's going to be a win. If 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 you start off, you know, if you somehow beat Georgia in that opener, that's that's going to change the complete narrative on this Oregon team. And so, like, if you beat Georgia in the opener, now you you better win the Pac twelve and be in the playoff. Like, you're you seem like a legit contender at that point. So it's hard to. It's hard to see them beating Georgia and then justifying losing to really any of these other teams in the Pac-12 on their schedule. So I don't know. I don't necessarily see that happening. But um, Oregon is definitely a team. Um, I, and I think the Pac-12 South is the stronger division of the conference as well. So, you know, I think Oregon could uh, could benefit from from the schedule strength as well, Pac-12. Hmm. Okay. Matt Green, that's all I've got. Do you have anything you would like to add uh, before we wrap up here on this edition of the full ride? Uh, those are some good ones, man. I, uh, it's interesting that we didn't have uh, any overlap there. So um, yeah, just excited to see. Uh... Oh, answer this question for me. NCAA tournament, changing it up on you. One last thing. Mm-hmm. What would have been a better storyline? We were having this debate this weekend. Um, St. Peter's, versus Duke in the final four or North Carolina versus Duke in the final four, which is what we have. What would have been a better storyline? North Carolina Duke, because I don't think St. Peter's could beat Duke. I think it would actually be a pretty terrible game. Like I think Duke would actually. Obviously now we've seen North Carolina like blasted St. Peter's. Yeah. It doesn't really help, but I, my, my take was Duke North Carolina is better just this year because of Coach K's last dance. Any mm. other year, St. Peter's is the number one story. So that that's that's the sexy story. The, the Cinderella, the 15 seed getting all the way to the final four. But yeah. that's a whole other movie. We don't want that movie. We got the Coach K movie already in progress. We need to finish this movie. So that's why Duke, North Carolina. That, that was my thought. So I was just curious your take. I wonder how much Peacocks went up in Google search. Uh, history numbers like that's always a thing like uh enrollment at st peter's yeah, is going to go up in the next couple of years but um yes yeah, peacocks like how many people just went out and got a peacock and like you know what we haven't done in a while we haven't gone to the zoo and checked out uh some peacocks and it's funny too like i mentioned over the weekend i was like it's just kind of a shame that you know st peter's got this great young coach and you know a year or two from now, he's going to be taking another job. Like, no, it was he's like already gone. It was yeah. like three days later. He's uh he's new Seton Hall coach. Well, to be fair, he went there and he's a legend there. And that was a, for that was sure. a good opportunity for him. So, Oh, without a doubt. Great run for Mr. Holloway. Um, but yeah, Matt green on Twitter, Matt underscore W underscore green. 
and uh, all things college football there. So he's always getting into uh, Twitter spats with their other folks on the <laughs> Twitter sphere. Um, but don't forget, you can also uh, watch us on YouTube, youtube.com, Chase Thomas Podcast, all that good stuff. Follow me on Twitter, Chase Double underscore Thomas. Um, but yeah, new episode next a, week. Yeah. Is that Doc Rivers you got back there? That is Doc Rivers. On, okay. Oh. Do you know who the other man is? I can't tell. I don't know. From here, it looks like the old man in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Grandpa no. Joe, is that his name? Not Grandpa Joe. No, it's Ben Matlock. <laughs> That's so <laughs> random. A lot of it was uh, my a lot of diversity back there. <laughs> you know, Matlock, Hawks, Braves. You're you're all over. Got it all covered. Matlock's my favorite man. That was like my favorite uh, television show growing up. I when I stayed home sick, I would I like <laughs> the amount of time I watched Matlock on WGN growing up. Matlock, he's my favorite. Like Matlock was my was my guy. Benjamin Matlock was the best friend I never had growing up. Matt Green, I love I love me some Matlock. More it's of a, a more show. of an Adrian Monk guy myself. Okay, it's fair. I'm into Bosch right now. Bosch kind of fits some of those blocks. My name is on Prime. It's pretty good. Matt Green, always a pleasure, and I will talk to you next week. Yes, sir. All right, we're back here on the Chase Most Podcast, where I am now joined by a first-timer who covers the great sport of NASCAR. Kelly Crandall is here. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's been a little bit of a tumultuous uh, week for for some NASCAR drivers, uh, specifically Ross Chastain. Like uh, a lot of people have takes. Like a lot of people in Hollywood have takes, or a lot of people in our in our personal lives have uh, perspectives on what happened Will Smith and Chris, and Chris Rock. There's also a lot of people who have perspectives on what happened with Ross Chastain and his victory on Sunday. There's it, it's the same kind of deal as like uh, who's responsible for what and I, I just I think we have to start there with what happened with Chastain. What do you make of the way he won on Sunday? And your like, what was your first reaction when you saw it happen live? And then uh, the fallout. My first reaction when I saw it live was I just laughed because it was just <laughs> a, it was just a really fun last lap. And when you just mm-hmm. when you're taking it in in the moment, you're laughing and enjoying it because it's like my goodness, what a ending! When you mm. go back and kind of. I guess Zapruder film it as everybody does now, as you said, it's, it's one of those things where you always have to break down who's responsible. Was somebody at fault? Was it over the line? We, we are in this sport where we just break down every little thing. Mm-hmm. So once you go back and look at it, it is interesting. I think where the, the problem, if you want to call it a problem or, or what's really caused the most discussion is people look at, the contact that AJ Allmendinger made and they don't think that the contact he then received was equal, right? Hmm. It was, it was AJ moved Ross, whereas people felt Ross wrecked AJ. Mm-hmm. So it was, it's something where it just, it doesn't, it's not even so to speak. And I, and that's where people, like I said, everybody's breaking it down. So I'm okay with it because listen, I mean, AJ, AJ made contact. I think he expected contact back. Um, Clearly, he didn't like the amount of contact, um, or at least I hope so. I don't hope he's upset because he got hit. Because again, mm-hmm. he, he opened the door. Uh, right. And I'm okay with it. Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with what Ross did because I think everybody understands that's who Ross is. He's very aggressive. 
uh, sometimes overly aggressive. We've seen this throughout his entire career. This should not be shocking at all. Uh, but he's also very hungry. And he admitted, you know, the, a race win is right there. He wasn't going to let that go. So as long as Ross understands that maybe it was a little too much and that AJ is going to come back and give him one, which I think Ross does, um, then I say no harm, no foul. I mean, everybody, you know, it was it was good racing. It was fun racing. It gives everybody something to talk about. So I was fine with it. It's also, I read a really good um, piece, I think it was Beyond the Flag, about um, the the aspect of Alex Bowman being involved here. So it's like, if Bowman's not there, is any of this a story? Because that was the other part of it that people are overlooking a little bit, is that like, if Alex Bowman's on the outside, then none of this happens and AJ doesn't spin out. Like, it's he doesn't finish number 33 this past Sunday. Like, that probably doesn't happen, but that's something that we're not talking about is that Bowman was actually another big factor in what happened here and probably a bigger factor to what happened to AJ than even Ross. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly a discussion around that. Um, Mm. You know, I, I, I don't really like dealing in hypotheticals. I think certainly, I mean, yeah, at the, at the base level of it. Yes. If, Alex Bowman's not there, then AJ Allmendinger doesn't bounce off of Alex Bowman yep. and he probably doesn't spin. I can agree with that. Um, you know, yeah, maybe he goes from first to third to fifth and, and not 33rd, like you said. Yeah. Um, it's just like, I, I just don't like trying to get into all those hypotheticals. What happened happened. Um, to me, it's just, it was awesome that at the end of that race and at the end of a road course and a really long day, there was three guys in contention. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the bigger story. So again, I, I, it sucks sometimes that we have to subruder film the entire thing and break and break down frame by frame. But yeah, I guess maybe, you know, there is something to be said about the fact that that Bowman was there and that probably played in, like I said, a little bit to the end result for AJ, but that's racing, you know, it's <laughs> just, it happens. <laughs> What uh, what does this mean for Ross, though, going forward? Is that his breakout moment? It's his first career NASCAR Cup Series victory. Do you think uh, this is the start of something for uh, the 29-year-old? I think you could certainly say it's a breakout. I, f- I think mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it felt like a long time coming. You know, certainly the last couple weeks, he was right there on the verge. I mean, he was three second- top five finishes, right? Yeah, In a second, row. Mm-hmm. second at Atlanta. He had that awesome run at Las Vegas. Um, you know, I think what he was top three at Phoenix. I'm, I'm mm. all the, all the yeah. races run together. I'm forgetting where we were, but so it was certainly something to where it was. It that was the next step. Is okay. He's been third, second, second all these weeks. Like that was the next thing that that team has proven that they clearly have hit on something. They are adapting well to this car. Ross has adapted to this car and as many people say it has leveled the playing field. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think you certainly say it's, it's a breakout. Um, it's a feel good story because again, those who know Ross Chastain's career and they know his journey, this is something that he's been working for to just first off to just get to the cup level and have a full-time ride. Uh, and now to go out and win. I mean, that's, it's impressive and yeah it's a breakout it's it should be celebrated i think it's it's a heck of an accomplishment uh, winning in the cup series is hard so anybody mm-hmm. who can win the cup series needs to be applauded for that so now going forward the fun part is seeing what else not just that his team can do but 
what that organization can do because to me, Trackhouse Racing has been by far the most impressive organization um, at the start of the 2022 season. So, uh, you know, Daniel Suarez could have won one already. Um, you know, I think I think Daniel was probably gutted after Sunday because he had the best car at the start of the race and it just didn't play out to where he was in contention at the end. So, yeah, certainly a breakout. And I think it I think for Ross, it's probably just lifts a, a big weight off his shoulders and it's going to be a big confidence boost. And that can do a lot for a driver. So now comes the fun part to seeing what else he can do. But again, I, I think the fun part also is is what that entire organization can do. Well, we know about this other organization and what they can do. Hendrick Motorsports, they're going to have a lot of playoff drivers. I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And it's kind of wild where they're at at this moment because Chase Elliott sits atop the point standings and he has not won yet. Like he is still uh, looking for his first 2022 uh, NASCAR Cup Series victory. He is the betting favorite this Sunday in Richmond. Um, Do you think this is the week that Chase Elliott uh, takes him the checker flag? You know, that's really interesting that he's the betting favorite because mm-hmm. he's not one at Richmond. And I think Chase would even admit that it's not necessarily a racetrack that he fully has his hands wrapped around. Hmm. Um, you know, I was actually reading just a little bit ago the pre-race advance that Hendrick Motorsports sent out. And it's it was in there that, you know, Chase, he feels like they've kind of gotten better the last couple of years. But again, it's not really been a racetrack that you look at Chase Elliott to go dominate at, right? Mm. It's not, at least to me, I don't think of Richmond and immediately put Chase Elliott at the top of the list of drivers that I think are going to go out there and be top three. So that's interesting to me that he's the betting favorite because I I wouldn't have said that. Um, hmm. Kyle Larson's in- number two, by the way. <laughs> right. Now, again, I mean, this car is the variable. So let's see mm. what happens for Chase and everybody that goes there. And, and you know, maybe this helps him close the gap a little bit. Um, so I don't know. I, I Again, I personally don't think it's the weekend that he gets to victory lane, but you never know. Like I said, this car is such a big variable that I think it it really leaves these races wide open right now to who can strike first. So hmm. um, that that's interesting to me. I'm that, <laughs> <laughs> that's really got me. Uh, that's, that's got me on that one of him being the, the betting favorite. Hmm. Me, I guess those people, I guess everybody knows something I don't. <laughs> well, maybe it's just like, eventually it's gonna They're going to be right. Like Vegas is going to be right about one of these yeah. very soon because Chase Elliott, like he has the top five finishes. He's right there most weeks. So it's like, they're going to be right. Like eventually in the next couple of weeks, they're going to, they're going to yeah. hit one of these. Well, listen, um, I mean, we go to, we go to Martinsville next week. I think he certainly, you put him at the, I would put him at the top of the list at Martinsville based mm-hmm. off of what he's done there the last couple of years. Um, you know, Bristol dirt is after that. Uh, I don't know about that one, but Talladega put them near the top of the list for that one. But yeah, Richmond is just not one that I would have on my list to say, okay, this is the weekend. Well, who would you have? Like if you didn't look at the Vegas odds and you were just forecasting who you think has the best, best shot to win in Richmond on Sunday, who would you go with? Yeah. So again, I mean, if, if for right now, if you take mm-hmm. the variable of the car out and we just go by the past couple races and just, yeah past experience i think you start with martin truex jr because that's richmond's basically been his playground the last couple years i mean that guy went from not being able to win a short track race to save his life to now every time we show up at a short track he is dominating races so 
I start with Martin Truex. Obviously, you look at an Alex Bowman because he won this race last year. I think what Larson is is a previous winner there, I, mm-hmm. I believe. So again, I always start with what have you done for me lately, and I and I look at the most recent results and and who the numbers favor in that regard. I like it. I like it. Um, you've mentioned the the cars and just how the the variable with that this year with the next gen cars, but like, do you think? At this point in the season, we're late March, early April. Like, do you think they're starting to get used to to the cars as a whole? Do you think the majority are? Do you think there's still a lot of a lot of variables they're still trying to work out? Or like, where do you think they're at? The majority of NASCAR drivers with the new cars. I, certain. I mean, look, these are the best drivers when it comes to stock car racing, you know, in the country, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, the, these drivers they're always surprising us because there's how many times for those who closely pay attention to racing, do we go into races expecting one thing and then the drivers completely surprise us because it doesn't happen. Right. And it reminds you, Mm -hmm. okay, these guys are professionals. I think that's, that could be applied here. Now, certainly I think on a week to week basis, they're, they're still learning the car because it's, they're still taking it to these racetracks for the first time. And it's reacting differently to each of these racetracks. So I think that's, what's keeping them on the, on their toes. But yeah, I think certainly they're getting more comfortable with a lot of probably the nuances of it and the intricacies of it, uh, you know, what the cockpit is like and how it feels and and just really understanding that at the end of the day, I think no matter what the racetrack is, the biggest thing is just understanding that it is very, very easy to step over the line. And when you step over that line, the car doesn't correct itself. The car is not going to save you. Um, Whereas we previously have heard about if you would get out of shape, you know, you'd get loose that the car kind of would catch itself and it would, you know, it would give you time to, to quote unquote, save it. Mm. Uh, the next gen car doesn't do that. So yeah, I think again, they're learning a little bit about this car each week as we go and they probably have a pretty good handle on it right now. But again, every time we go to a new racetrack that they don't have a lot of laps on with this car, uh, it's, that's a big learning curve, right? I mean, going to Coda, that was the first time a lot of them had put it on a road course. You know, not everybody mm. tested at the Roval, and the Roval is a completely different phenomenon than than Coda or Watkins Glen. So again, I I think yes, they they have an idea of what they can and can't do with this race car, but they're still finding, as I said, little things along the way that of how it reacts to particular racetracks. Interesting. Um, Christopher Bell has had a really unlucky 2022 season. I feel like you go through the list of like how he's, how these races have ended for him or what's happened. And I want to get your perspective on him because he's another young upstart who it seems like they're, the future is bright, but what have you made of his, his season thus far? Has it just been one of those unlucky years? Do you think he's going to break through at some point? What do you think uh, has been the case with him? Cause he was, he led what 40 something laps uh, a few weeks back. Where was that? It wasn't Daytona. Where did he lead? Why am I blanking on this? It wasn't Phoenix. Where was he? Where did he lead for like 40 laps for a while? What am I blanking on? I'm blanking too. Like I said, every, for me, everything yeah. runs together. <laughs> yeah. I just remember where that was. Um, Wow, that's gonna take me a second. I will figure that out in a second. Um, I think it was the it was where Bowman won. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I want to say it was the race that Bowman won. Vegas. Um, yeah, I think it was Vegas. Yeah, that sounds, it was Vegas. I, it was Vegas. He was Vegas. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of different leaders there. Yes. Um, well, what do you make of Bell? What do you make of his how he's how he's uh, driven this year? 
Well, I think he's driving great. I think that mm. he uh, fits right in with this race car going back to everything that I just said about it. I think that suits his style. And mm. you go back to Fontana where he spun out in practice and he got out of the car and he was smiling because, you know, he, he likes the fact that these cars are on edge and a driver is going to make the difference. A driver has to drive the race car. So I don't think it's anything Christopher Bell is doing. I think you hit on it. It's just bad luck. It's just sometimes a driver goes through that stretch where they can't get anything to go their way. Um, and it's not just him. The, the amazing thing is if you look at the drivers who are around him in points, there's a mm. lot of big name drivers that are at the bottom of that point sheet. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of it, yes, is because they're just not performing well. Um, and then there's other ones like a Christopher Bell and a Denny Hamlin. And gosh, like I said, there's so many of them back there that, you know, they're running well during the race. They're just not getting the finishes. So, mm. um, but particularly, again, you asking about Christopher Bell, I don't think it's anything he's doing. I don't think it's anything the team is doing. It's just a lot of bad luck because they've been fast. Again, I, I think he's really comfortable in this race car. They just got to get the brakes to go their way. What about you mentioned Denny Hamlin? So he had some strong, some strong words about uh, the current state. He he went on Twitter. He had some thoughts, and uh, he had to get them out on Twitter.com, which is what uh, the best place for for discourse is Twitter.com. And his perspective is just that, like for some folks in NASCAR, uh, doing whatever it takes to win, if that means potentially wrecking somebody, you get a different uh, outlook. You get a different way of coverage of what happens. And for others, it doesn't go that way. Um, and that maybe, just maybe, the, the not ideology, but just the, the mindset that drivers have now is to do whatever it takes to win. Because ultimately, like that's what people are going to remember is who won the checker flag. It's not really about how you won it. It's just like, who won in Vegas? Who won in Phoenix? Who won wherever? Like, who won at Coda? Um, they won't remember that stuff. Like we'll forget about the Ross Chastain incident months from now. Like it would just be like, Oh, right. He won that. Um, what do you make of Hamlin's comments? Do you think he has a, a strong case that there is some, some discrepancy, some hypocrisy in the way this is, this is covered for certain drivers or do you not think so? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I just, again, it just depends on how, how you're looking at it. Right. And it, and the same thing goes for race fans because, you know, I've, I took a lot of flack on Twitter a couple of weeks ago because you know, one of my colleagues, Jeff Gluck, he does the poll, you know, was it a good mm -hmm. race after every race? Now, let's keep in mind, Twitter is not real life, right? So I don't think we can really equate that to whether or not people really thought it was a good race or not. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after he did it after Fontana, and I was just kind of being my snarky self, because there was a, uh, it, I think, like 7% when I looked at the poll at that point, mm -hmm. I didn't know. And Fontana, I thought was, I mean, I think everybody thought was a fantastic race. There was a lot of lead changes. It was a much better race at Fontana than we've seen in many, many years. So me just being my snarky self, I said, well, maybe, you know, I guess the 7% were Chase Elliott fans. Because, yeah. because to your point, race fans will look at the ending of a race or look at the winner of the race. And that, that makes you biased to whether or not you enjoy that race, right? Because mm -hmm. all you're remembering is who won it. I, yeah, I think media, everybody does the same thing. If you're latching on to a particular moment, that's going to jade you to whether or not you like that moment. Hmm. Now, again, in Denny's case, I think what he's bringing up is the fact that there, there's two things here. The first is, yes, there is hypocrisy, whether it's from media or fans, whoever it may be, across the board, that some drivers can do something, can act a certain way, can race a certain way, and people think it's great. Mm -hmm. There's other drivers who do the exact same thing and they'll be criticized for it. 
Now, for instance, I think what Denny was implying, and, and, and again, maybe I shouldn't speak for Denny, but in Denny's case, an example could be made of, okay, he ran over Chase Elliott in Martinsville a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Denny, is, Denny has owned up to that. He blew the corner. He crashed Chase Elliott at the end of a Martinsville race. He apologized. He, he took you know, his faults for it. Everybody hated Denny Hamlin. Because it's like, well, he's a veteran. He should know better. What was he doing? He shouldn't race like that. A couple weeks later, Chase Elliott runs into the side of Denny Hamlin, cuts his tire down. Denny hits the wall and doesn't make it a homestead. People loved it because it yeah. was Chase, because it was Chase standing up for himself. And well, of course, it was payback. You know, he was mad. Why wouldn't he do that? To me, that's that's hypocrisy because you can't get mad at one driver for doing something, but like another one who does it, right? So I think that that's part of it. So yeah, there's absolutely hypocrisy of of who can get away with what and and who can't. So I know I said there was a second part of it, but I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Does it involve Kevin Harvick? Is he involved at all? I feel like it's always got to involve Kevin Harvick with some controversy here. Well, listen, I drivers drivers sometimes have short memories, right? Yeah, you know. I think athletes in general have short memories. I think you have to. Yeah, I think you have to move true. forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably true. It's like, you know, what I do to you is okay, but don't do that to me. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, look, and we, we started this conversation by talking about AJ Allmendinger. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, I think that perfectly falls into, into this category. Again, AJ can be mad maybe at the amount of contact he got from Ross Chastain, but there's mm-hmm. no way in the world that he can, that he should be mad that he was hit at all because again, that right. would be another example of hypocrisy. So yeah, I just, again, I mean, I'd have to go back and look at Denny's comments. I kind of briefly saw them the other day and maybe that would, that would spark where I was going with that. But yeah. Um, his tweets yeah. were basically that, like, hey, ultimately, let's just be honest. Like, his whole thing is he just wants it all on the table of, like, let's just be, like, let's get here. Like, either let's collectively decide that no matter what, yeah. if you want to do whatever to win, that's... Oh, okay, that's so, yeah, the, the racing part of it, that was, yes. that was where I was going. So, the, the mm. second part, yes. Well, the racing aspect, of the, that is interesting because I feel like that is born out of the system that drivers are put into whether we Hmm. want to admit it or not a large part of the problem again if you want to call it a problem is that this system that nascar created constantly hypes up when and you are in the playoffs and making the playoffs is a very very big deal to these race teams it's a very very big deal Okay, there's money involved, there's sponsors involved, making the playoffs is very, very important. So when you create a system, and you hype up that to get in the playoffs, you have to win a race. There's going to be drivers who are going to say, you know what, I will absolutely do whatever it takes to win a race. There's other drivers who won't. So yeah, I mean, again, that's the system they create. And I think for Denny, again, (laughs) because people are trying to People, I feel like, don't want to admit that. And I think that's where his comment came from, is, look, just stand up and say that you're here for the crashes. Just stand up and say that you're here for drivers wrecking each other for wins, right? So, again, I I just, I think it all comes from the the system that they're put in. Well, in less controversial uh, takes, um, we can go away from this. This is happy because... This is something that's always cool. It's a new paint scheme. Like we see some new paint schemes. And 
Um, I think it's Kyle Bush who's got the new M&M uh, chocolate crunch. I forgot what it is. It's not chocolate crunch. It's something like it might be chocolate crunch. It's something it's, like that. I think this week it's cookies. Cookies. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, but it has the big M&M logo and stuff and it's very colorful. It's good luck. I like it. Chase Elliott rocking some new paints games. But um, when you've looked at them, what stands out to you? Do you do you have a favorite new paints game that you've seen this week? Well, I love paint schemes. I've always loved yeah. paint schemes since I first came into the sport. I was watching as a fan. It's just so easy to get caught up in all the cars and the colors, right, as as any race fan would do. So I love paint schemes. Um, you know, it's fun because this year when it comes to the next-gen car and where the number is positioned, that really opened the door for a lot of these teams and sponsors to get creative of how they were going to come up with their paint schemes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, some – yeah, some did it better than others. <laughs> um, oh, who did you not like? Who did you not like, Kelly? Oh, gosh. Let's see. Um, so early in the year, there was a couple Ross Chastain paint schemes that just weren't doing it for me. The logo mm-hmm. on the side by the number is just there was a lot going on. And it was just I don't know if it was just because you can't really do a lot with a number one. <laughs> so That's I, I don't know. It was they they weren't working for me. Um mm-hmm. I'd have to go back and look. I don't really remember the ones I don't like because I I, I, I remember a lot of what I do like. I love the yeah. Ally paint scheme. I think Ally, Alex Bowman, Hendrick Motorsports did a great job with incorporating that space on the side of the race car for the Ally logo. Um, Kevin Harvick's Ream scheme, I know he doesn't run it on a weekly basis, but I thought that one was really cool. I love the colors red and black, though, so I yeah. thought that, that that looked really, really sharp. Um. And even Martin Truex Jr.'s Bass Pro Car, just the again mm-hmm. the colors and just um, the way that they just incorporated the logos and everything, I felt like uh, they did a really good job there. So yeah, it's like anything; some people do do better than others. So the discount tire scheme on the two cars has always been sharp because it's just so simple. It's just so so simple and clean and um, uh, really, yeah. I just really I really like that one too. I think if I was a if I was a NASCAR driver, I think discount tires would be my, my, uh, my sponsor. Like I, I live, I've sworn by a uh, discount tire for like 15 years. Like it's, I I'm like a long-term, uh, committed, uh, consumer and, uh, of the discount tire product. It's great stuff. There you go. NASCAR There's your plug. We work. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, we'll end on this. So Bubba Wallace had a rough week. His team had a rough week. Um, what do you make of what happened on Sunday at Coda and the fallout from that? So the wheel coming off the car? Yeah, the wheel coming off and just everything else. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we've, we've already seen through the first, you know, five races, even going into Coda, that if a wheel comes off, it's it's, it's going to be a penalty. I mean, we knew coming yeah. into the year. Uh, that penalty is not a new penalty. That penalty has been there for years. We just don't normally see it with the five lug nuts because it takes a lot for a tire with five lug nuts to come off. Um, mm. But teams have been penalized that for that before. The most recent one that I remember is Kyle Busch at Dover. It might have been 2017, 2018. So it's mm-hmm. not a new penalty. The difference is we're just seeing it a lot more this year because you only have one lug nut. Um, mm. So, I mean, I, unless I'm told differently, I don't see anything that was out of the ordinary there other than, you know, maybe they fell victim to they just didn't have it tight. They just didn't get that lug tight. Um, you know, I did a lot of work and talked to a lot of people coming into the year about these pit stops and it's a whole new ball game for these tire changers to really understand what it takes to get that wheel 
tight. Uh, hmm. It's a brand new sensation. It's a brand new feeling. It's a brand new pit gun. So, um, you know, I would think as the year goes on, we'll see less and less of that. But as of right now, I'm not really surprised that we're seeing as many as we are, because I think it's just, again, until I'm told otherwise that it's a, that it's a, a lug problem or, or, you know, a parts problem, then I'm just going by the assumption that again, you're just not getting it tight and it's just human error, uh, error. So, um, that's what happened to the 23 team. And they're the latest to have, uh, their crew chief, Jack man and tire changer on a four week vacation. So it's, it's unfortunate. It, ha- it hasn't really been the start to the season. I think that that 23 team in general has wanted, they've kind of had some good and bad moments. So, uh, to then go into a race where uh, you weren't running very well and, and have uh, a wheel come off is kind of the worst case scenario there. <laughs> could be worse. It could be like the Kyle Busch situation. Um, it could be the point situation there. I don't know. Um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. But I think it'll be all right. I think they'll be okay. Um, Kelly, what can the good folks check out from you this week uh, across your NASCAR coverage? <laughs> well, I'll be in Richmond this weekend. So back on the nice. road. Um uh, yeah, I've got a good stretch coming up here. I think I'm four straight on the road. So I'll be at Richmond. But yeah, racer.com is where you'll find everything NASCAR. Um, Twitter, I always I always say go to Twitter because that's where you'll get things in live time. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm addicted to Twitter. Try to update that fairly regularly throughout the day. And uh, the podcast, the Racing Writers mm-hmm. Podcast, we're we're rolling right along. I'm, I'm 217 episodes deep now, I think. So there you go. I was just editing the next one this morning. So they drop on Mondays, but uh, yeah, racer.com, Twitter. Uh, I mean, look, Instagram, you can find me anywhere. I'm very lucky because I've, I've got lucky with having my, my name available on all social media platforms. So people don't have to search for crazy usernames. You can just go to Google and, and find me pretty easily. Yeah. I wasn't that lucky. There's still a chase Thomas at on Twitter that has zero followers and zero following. And I've reported for spam and I've tried to get it for, for years and i've never been able to do it like i'll know what i made it when i am able to just like get somebody in the twitter sphere to like just get rid of that account so i can have my actual name because it that that drives me more nuts like if it was someone it was like i share a name with a former stanford cardinal linebacker nfl guy and he's actually from georgia too ironically enough but he uh he doesn't even have it so i'm like okay if i lost it to an nfl guy like whatever if he has it that's fine but like for for this this is unacceptable jack dorsey you got to do something you gotta you gotta intervene on my behalf because this this is a travesty and i won't stand for it kelly this has been great thank you so much for making the time today i greatly appreciate it we'll have to check back in again soon yeah absolutely i enjoyed it thanks for uh, having me on All right, we're back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by a first-timer, John McNamara, up there in Wisconsin, where all they do is win. He's got the Bucks t-shirt on this evening. He's He's got the Green Bay Packers. He's got the Wisconsin Badgers, who've won nine games for 37 years in a row. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, man. Um, the Wisconsin Badgers, I wanted to talk to you about them tonight because they're a team that... For someone like me who covers college football as much as I do and has watched as much of Wisconsin as I have, and I'm down here in Knoxville, and uh, Knoxville, they play a little bit of a different brand of football these days than uh, the Wisconsin Badgers up there with Paul Chris. But it was so weird because 
the Graham Mertz signing, I want to start here because he was just this highly touted young blue chipper that's coming into Wisconsin. And we're like, hey, Wisconsin might be fun. Like, not just good. They're always going to be good, but they might be fun on offense. This might be explosive. This might be something we haven't seen since Russell Wilson. And it just hasn't gone that way. Um, If you had to explain the Graham Mertz experience to this point, John, how would you do so and what has gone wrong and what uh, what should we have seen coming uh, with hindsight being 2020? Yeah, it's a lot to digest there. Uh, I'll start with <laughs> right. Um, Wisconsin has never brought in a quarterback as highly touted as Graham Mertz or a quarterback with the amount of offers as a guy like Graham Mertz accumulated through the, the recruiting process and then you know, he goes into the all-star game there, the U.S. Army All-American Bowl, and is the MVP of that. So, you know, expectations were sky high. I mean, you really felt like Wisconsin had a blue-chip quarterback for the first time ever through the recruiting process. Obviously, you get Russell Wilson there for a one-year deal, and he was great. But never through the, the recruiting process had you got a guy like Graham Mertz. Um, he came in and he redshirted his first year, and then he was thrown into the fire when uh, Jack Cohn was injured. And he, he kind of set the world on fire that first game against Illinois um, through five touchdown passes. Uh, you know, his QB rating was great. And then he was, you know, kind of trended back down, uh, you know, towards reality there. And he kind of had a subpar second year with Wisconsin as a starter. And then you go back to last year and he was very inconsistent. So, you know, his, his first two years as Wisconsin starting quarterback, um, haven't lived up to the expectations I think fans have put on him. Um, and that's why this is going to be such a big year for him. Certainly not a make or break year. There's really no one in Wisconsin's spring camp right now that's going to challenge him for the starting job. But I think if Wisconsin want to get, wants to get back to the Big Ten title game, a lot of that is going to rely on Graham Mertz. And if he's able to take the next step in his development, which I, which I think is a lot more mental and off the field in terms of preparation than it is in terms of his skill set. Do you think that's where the fumble stuff came from? Was just that's a mental thing? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough to pinpoint one specific thing. At times, it looks like the game is going a little bit too quickly for Mertz, where, you know, he, he breaks the huddle and he kind of locks onto one guy. He's like, okay, right now I'm going to throw to this guy. So I think you could say he should look through his progressions more often. Uh, he should be more patient back there. And those are all things that Graham Mertz has kind of admitted to and, and talked about in the offseason. He's very honest about, you know, the, the stuff that's happened over the last two years and the things that he can improve on. But I really don't think it's a skill set thing. I think it's the game needs to slow down a bit. And he needs to, like I said, go through his progressions and really have a better grasp of the offense um, moving forward here. And he'll have that opportunity to do that this year for Wisconsin. Well, another interesting facet of last year was that you really like the it's just the Melvin Gordon, uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, uh, Jonathan Taylor tailback rather. And then you have just insert like Ron Dane. You just you, you go up and down the list. Wisconsin, Monty, uh, Monty Ball. Like there's just so many dudes who have just dominated in uh, in Wisconsin. And this past year. It was Mertz. You were like, okay, this is Mertz's show. You have the Clemson transfer in there in the running back room, and you got like this maybe two-headed monster, but the running game's just not there. 
for the first few weeks of the season. The offense is struggling. The whole team's struggling. We're like, okay, is Wisconsin in real trouble? Because Jim Leonard's doing everything he can to keep this season afloat and keep uh, Wisconsin in the thick of things. But what changed down the stretch for Wisconsin's offense outside of Graham Mertz? And what did they figure out with the running game? Well, they figured out Braylon Allen. And yeah. obviously he's going to be a... A, a huge piece to Wisconsin's team this year as a sophomore. And like you talked about, you know, Wisconsin went into last season with Ches Malusi, yep. uh, the transfer as their number one running back. And then Braylon Allen, who came in as just kind of an athlete, and they stuck him at running back. Um, a guy, when they recruited him, thought he was going to be a safety. Then they thought he was going to be a linebacker. So obviously he's fit now at running back. But, you know, he started to emerge, you know, three, four year games into that season and he was he was great for Wisconsin and then Malusi goes down with an injury then it was kind of the Braylon Allen show and he you know he took a lot of punishment you know during the during the season and he was a guy that played a spring high school season arrived at Wisconsin this summer and then played a full Big Ten season as a guy who graduated early so there's a lot of wear and tear on his body and um, you know he was just really nicked up down the stretch there so you know he's not going to do a ton during this spring He'll be a hundred percent. You would assume, you know, next next season, this fall here as Wisconsin's number one tailback. I think you know expectations are sky high for him. But you know, like you alluded to, you know, Wisconsin, the formula is the same. They want to run the ball, regardless if they have Graham Mertz there or Russell Wilson, whoever it might be. They want to run the ball, and I think they feel like they'll be able to do that with Braylon Allen, Ches Malusi likely coming back before the opener. And an offensive line that they think is going to be stronger than it was last year. So is he a bell cow back? Is he someone that we're just going to be looking at as like, oh, this guy's going to be in the Heisman conversation two years from now? Or do you think, like you said, with the wear and tear and just uh, his uh, just kind of greenness towards being a running back in this league, considering he was just a safety and everything else. Um, does he have, based on what you've seen, the makeup of someone who they can just count on as a 30 carry a game guy in the Big Ten? I do. And, and I, again, it's tough to say if a guy holds up to that that type of work. But, you know, I, I think Braylon is up to that task. He's not a guy that's going to, you know, split carries. And he's not a guy that's going to want to come off the field on third down. So I, I absolutely do think that he could be your workhorse tailback there, complemented by, you know, Ches Malusi, who, if healthy, you know, is going to demand a handful of carries potentially Isaac Arendo's in that mix as well. So, you know, they have guys there, but I think very much so it's going to be Braylon Allen. And, you know, maybe it's this year, maybe it's the following year, but I, I do think that he will be a guy mentioned in that Heisman conversation just because, you know, the expectations are sky high for him, and I think they're very valid. You know, they, they think they have another true great running back in Braylon Allen, hmm. and he showed you glimpses of that this past season as a true freshman. Um. Caleb Williams. That was like one of my favorite random rumors from this college football offseason was the Caleb Williams Wisconsin stuff because I the USC stuff's boring. That's boring. USC's gonna be fine. They're gonna get another quarterback. I didn't want Lincoln to get Caleb Williams back. I was like, all right, let's let's throw Caleb Williams in a weird spot. Let's put him somewhere where it's like, oh, he could be like USC's not winning anything next year with Caleb Williams. They're not there yet. I mean, they can be the portal kings, as Lane Kiffin alluded to, but they're still, it's going to be at least a year. You throw Caleb Williams in this mix with Wisconsin, you're like, okay, does Wisconsin win the Big Ten next year? Are they the favorites? Like, are we completely going to reevaluate how we look at Wisconsin? Like, is Wisconsin a playoff team? Like, I love that idea. And I just started like the 
the the train was out the station and I was just moving towards it. I'm like, this needs to happen. I've already talked myself into it. Let's make Wisconsin fun again. Let's see where we go. How real, based on what you know, how real was Caleb Williams as a possibility in Madison? Yeah. Uh, look, I think at when this was all unfolding, it was very easy to say, look, all the, all the pieces line up to USC. I can say with very strong certainty that Wisconsin was in that conversation. Wisconsin was being considered. And the the big piece to that was Bobby Ingram, who is now hmm. Wisconsin's coordinator, and the connections that he had to Caleb Williams. And, you know, Bobby Ingram's son was um, – Dean Ingram played with, uh, you know, Williams in high school. So that connection put Wisconsin in the conversation. Now – USC, I think, was the favorite from the start, and obviously that's where he ended up. But I, I think it—I shouldn't say I think. I, I know that Wisconsin was a player for him and was a team that he strongly considered. Uh, and obviously, he winds up at USC. But yeah, you know, you talk about—you know—what could have been. Uh, I don't know that Wisconsin then is the favorite because I think the Big Ten year in and year out goes to Ohio State just with the way that they recruit and the talent on that roster, but. Man, yeah, it, it would have been an exciting thing to watch with Caleb Williams there with a the, with the strong running game. And Wisconsin has some emerging talent at the, at the skill positions as well. You pair that with a great defense. So, I, you know, then you probably are, okay, is, is this a team that could be in the playoff conversation, you know, without him, which is obviously what they're going through this fall. I think, you know, they will be in the discussion to be, you know, playing in Indianapolis for a Big Ten title just because, you know, that's what Wisconsin has done. And a big part of that is playing the Big Ten West, which is not as strong as the Big Ten East. So this is a very similar Wisconsin team, I think, that you've seen in the years past where it's a good team. And if they take care of business, they have a really good shot at playing uh, in Indianapolis for a shot at the Big Ten title. Yeah, I mean, as long as I was committed to a 99 uh, ranking and scoring uh, per CFB stats every year, I mean, Wisconsin, the Big Ten West is right there for the taking year over year. Um, Sometimes nepotism works out for the good folks in Madison. Um, when you look, though, at the <laughs> the spring and you're, we're thinking about Mertz and like I, we just talked about with Caleb Williams, there's still going to be some more movement. We're, we just saw Daniels move to LSU from Arizona State. Um, you really never know when a dude's just going to pop out. Like, would you be surprised? I mean, Emory Jones is not an option, but like JT Daniels still looking out West. Like we don't know where he's going to end up. I've heard that that comes down to like school stuff with him. And that's part of the reason that he's waited out. I think he wanted to graduate or something before he made it. He started really looking. So I don't know what's a hundred percent accurate there, but is there still a chance though, even though it's not Caleb Williams, they didn't land Caleb Williams, that they still bring in some other transfer quarterback to compete with Graham Mertz for this fall? I, I think it's unlikely. I think it's very okay. unless there was a perfect fit type scenario with a connection, much like, you know, Caleb Williams was, you know, I don't think that Wisconsin was actively looking for quarterbacks this offseason. I think that Caleb Williams was, you know, hey, this is too good to not pursue. This is, you know, too good to to pass on or just kind of overlook. And again, all of that was really Bobby Ingram, who who's coming as is Wisconsin's offensive coordinator. You know, they Wisconsin's not in that conversation without him, right? I mean, that's hmm. pretty easy to say, I think. Um, so again, I don't I don't know that they go into the summer saying, 
you know, we're going to keep our eyes open. We're going to look for it. I, I really don't. I think it was, hey, if we can get Caleb Williams, fantastic. If not, you know, we have a guy who is a two-year starter returning, even though he's, you know, been shaky, been inconsistent. But again, I, the town is there for Graham Mertz. Now, a part of that is on his Wisconsin staff to develop him now this offseason so he can take that next step in his development. Can I offer you a Joe Milton? I don't think Wisconsin fans are going to take Joe Milton. They they saw Joe Milton uh, play against Wisconsin, and I don't, I don't know that they might pass on that. And I can't speak for the Wisconsin fans, but I I think it might be a pass. Hey man, people are saying he's got the same exact uh, build as Cam Newton uh, back when he was at Auburn. People are saying so. Yeah. I just you can't Is you can't the, roll it out. Uh, Auburn Cam Newton or Cam Newton? What we're seeing right now? Because uh, oh man. <laughs> Big I will say the thing about I, I'm curious, like I, I, with how much practice you I'm sure you watch, like is Mertz a good practice player? Because Joe Milton is like a practice king where you look at Joe Milton's throws and the way he works in practice. You're like this dude, Joe Milton is going to like he'll always be the most frustrating Tennessee quarterback in the last like 10 years for me. Like I'm already out. Like I was so annoyed. Like I was in the building for the pick game and just the overthrows but the arm talent and just his just cannon it's like and his running ability like he's a really smart runner he's huge he can take a beating like joe milton should be a heisman guy like that is a hundred percent he should be like jim harbaugh was right in like looking at this kid in high school and like oh yeah yeah, like done done deal like this guy put him in our system he's going to be a superstar and that's just not not reality and it's so frustrating it's so frustrating yeah and that's that's not Mertz. Mertz isn't a yeah. guy who is like, wow, the arm talent. Wow, the, you know, like you talked about everything in practice where everything is like perfect in practice. I mean, it, it's, you know, to be honest, it's not like that. I mean, he, you know, specifically this last fall where he wasn't being pushed by competition. He's not being pushed right now. And I think that's one thing that you might argue. Should you bring a guy in there just to push him? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so if you go back to last fall, Look, he wasn't setting the world on fire in practice. It just, that wasn't happening. Did he look good in practice at times? Yeah. Did he struggle at times? Yeah. So he's not like, man, like like a Joe Milton, where it's like, if he could just put it together. I mean, this guy has all the talent in the world. Now, yeah, Mertz is talented, but he's not one of those guys where you're just salivating and just praying (laughs) together. He shows you a little bit here, a little bit there. He shows you a little bit here, a little bit there in the games as well. It's just, it's just kind of about putting the entire package together on Saturdays. Okay. Um, in terms of Jim Leonard, like he is just such an elite defensive play caller. He is someone that is critical to uh, Wisconsin sustained success. What makes him though, someone who watches every Wisconsin game, like what makes Jim Leonard's defenses so perennially dominant? Is it the combination of just how good of a recruiter he is and is it a combination of just uh, like what does he do specifically that like you just know every year like they're going to be good defensively they're going to be one of the most efficient de- defenses in college football year over year because they simply have a Jim Leonard as DC. Yeah, you know I think it has. You no, know, let me say that was Wisconsin has some talent on that defense and they've had mm-hmm. really good talent on that defense specifically at outside linebacker which has kind of become, you know, a glamour position for them. But, you know, I think it's it's more so of Jim Leonard being probably one of the best defensive minds 
in the game of football. I mean, not just at the collegiate level, likely at the pro level. I mean, he was offered the Green Bay Packers defensive coordinator yeah. job, and he walked away from that. Uh, so, I, I mean, you really feel like you have someone who is doing it at a level that very few people are doing it at. And, you know, being able to recognize this is the talent I have and these are the ways I'm going to put them in positions to have success. And, you know, you listen to guys talk about Jim Leonard, you know, not only can – you know, not only does he have obviously a, a grasp of everything that's going on, but you know, his ability to teach that and then, you know, break it down to those guys. And you listen to those guys talk about it. I mean, it's, it, those guys just speak so glowingly of him. So I think it's more about Leonard being one of the better defensive minds that, that is coaching football. Right now. And that has certainly benefited Wisconsin since he's been the defensive coordinator there. They've had excellent defenses that annually rank in the top five if not at the top in college football. Yeah, I um it, it's just it's pretty amazing. But when you like is he wired like a Brent Venables where like he he's happy here for a long time. He's not like dying to get a head coaching job or do you think that might come sooner rather than later and Wisconsin fans should brace for the right kind of head coaching job that might actually pull him away? Yeah, you know, that's kind of the million-dollar question. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that he will likely be the next head coach at Wisconsin. Oh. Paul Chris steps away. Uh, you know, Paul Chris, look, he's, he's never going to get fired. It, it really mm-hmm. will depend on, in my, this is my opinion, when Paul Chris wants to walk away, you know, is that in four years? Is that in five years? I, I think that's probably a conversation or something that Jim Leonard is aware of. And if, if, if that situation does come and, you know, Jim Leonard's is still the coordinator and Paul Chris decides to retire, you know, I think that's the first phone first and only phone call that Chris McIntosh, Wisconsin's new athletic director makes. So I, I would imagine there's something not necessarily in place, but uh, an understanding that like, this is the way we will go with this. Jim Leonard's name is always going to be brought up for jobs, whether it's, in the NFL, whether it's at the collegiate level at, you know, SEC schools down closer by you, you know, Alabama, Georgia, you know, he obviously is worthy of those jobs, but you know, the Packers coordinator job seemed to be the perfect mix. You know, I, I think that he's open to the idea of coaching in the NFL. I think he very much wants to stay inside the state of Wisconsin, you know, Green Bay to Madison's not a far drive. Um, but he's a guy who, Look, he, he's played in the NFL, made a lot of money. He's not doing this for the paycheck right now. I think he's doing this because he loves Madison. He wants his family to be in Madison. And he's not going to be in a position where he's forced out there. So, you know, keeping his kids in, in school and not moving them around, I think, is a big deal to him. And like I said, you probably know that in a handful of years, if you want to take this program over and keep your family in Madison – which, like I said, is important to him, he will have that opportunity. So, again, every offseason that goes on, he's going to be mentioned for jobs. But I do think that, obviously, Wisconsin's special to him, and he sees a potential light at the end of the tunnel in being the head coach if he does want to pursue that when he's done, or when, I'm sorry, whatever Paul Chris has done with his tenure there. He's only 56 though. Is Chris really like, I mean, Barry Alvarez was there. How long, when did they, when did Barry Alvarez finally retire? What age was he? Yeah, well, he was kind of in that same, I'm not sure yeah. exactly. So he 
stepped away from coaching and then he was the athletic director for, for a long True. time. I don't True. think Paul Cripp any desire to do that. You know, he's different mm-hmm. than Barry was, but um, you know, he's been coached for a long time and I yeah. don't know that guy that's just going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it just to do it. Um, uh, you know, I, again, it's, it's tough to put a timeline on a guy who has never come out and said, this is my timeline. I do right. think Wisconsin fans would love to have it happen. And it, it makes total sense that when Paul Chris is ready to walk away, Jim Leonard is going to be there. Should he want to take that job? And he's really never talked about, yes, I want to be the head coach at Wisconsin. No, I don't. But look, I, you know, it, it kind of all lines up if that's what all the parties involved want to do. What, what about the chaos option, which is something I'm not going to lie. I'm rooting for It's like, what if Ferentz retires first before Chris, and then Iowa just brings the house and they're like, whatever you want, Jim Leonard, we already are basically a different iteration of Wisconsin football every year. Why not just move over to the black and gold? Why not just uh black car, uh, black. What is that website? The Iowa blog. It's like black heart gold pants. What if you uh, what if you came over here? Would Jim Laird do it? Would he go to a rival for a head coaching job? I don't know. You know, he was rumored to be in the job, you know, the the contention for the Illinois job. And yeah, I would imagine that if he wanted that job, he could have had that job. He went to Brett. He can do better than that. Yeah. You know, and I, I think I was a good job now. Yeah. If if Jim Leonard made it known that, like, yeah, I want that Iowa job, then. <laughs> Then things might the extensions be able- coming. Yeah, the contract's getting re- looked at again. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just don't see it. Have look, I, I really thought that, like, you know, we started to prep stories for it. Jim Leonard to the Green Bay Packers, like that. Just so it was sense. real, real. Like it was close. Yeah, and like that one, it, you know, again, at least to me, made a lot of sense. You know, you're coaching mm-hmm. in the NFL. You're a coordinator. NFL. You know, you get to stay in the state of Wisconsin. It's not that much of a move for your family. And mm-hmm. when he turned that down, it's like, wow, like what job would he take and leave Wisconsin for? It, you know, does that job not exist? I, and those are all questions that, you know, the answers could change every offseason. But look, Alabama and, you know, a lot of top programs have kicked the tires on Jim Leonard and he's continued to come back for to Wisconsin. I think that it's not unrealistic to say that he'll be at Wisconsin until, I don't know, till Paul Chris, like I said, decides to move on. And there's no timetable for that either. So it's a lot of, you know, assuming, I suppose, but he's proven that, look, despite what I'm being offered, despite what you hear, I'm back here for another season. I think it's going to be like that again until Paul Chris steps away. All right. I like it. Um, we'll end on this, John. When you look at the schedule and you look at how the Big Ten West is looking for for this year, I mean, outside of being grateful that you're not in the Big Ten East and having to deal with that year over year, but when you look at it, is there any doubt that the Wisconsin Badgers should not win the Big Ten West and at least be in the in the conversation for the playoff, depending on uh, how the season goes? Like this is a double digit win season, right? Yeah, it, like look, it it feels very much like every other season. And uh, again, Mm. a lot that is because you're playing in the West. So you're like, can we beat Iowa? We will most likely beat Minnesota. Nebraska is not good. Like, can we not 
trip up against Northwestern. And like, you know, in every year, one of those teams ascends a little bit. One of those teams descends a little bit. Minnesota beat Wisconsin last year. So obviously like yeah. Minnesota's legit, you know, PJ Fleck has done good things with that program. I mean, that really was not a rivalry for 20 years. Now it is a rivalry because, you know, Minnesota can play with Wisconsin now and they've proven that. I was a good team. I was kind of the same team each and every year. Wisconsin loses to Northwestern every other year. So again, like it, it seems like kind of the same old story where you're like, this is a good Wisconsin team that, that if they take care of business, they'll have a shot at most likely Ohio State and Indianapolis. And it's a boring storyline year after year when you do these interviews in, in spring and in fall. But look, that's that's kind of the case because you do have a path each and every year if you're Wisconsin to, to get to Indianapolis to play in the big 10 title game. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that I hadn't considered it where it's like the bit, the, the sec, they just change like all the time. And like, there's no real identity with a lot of these teams anymore. Like in terms of like play style, it's not like they're committed to whatever, like Saban's like, all right, does this win now? All right, this out. Like we're, we'll switch yeah. everything. I don't care. Like I, I don't have to like it, but I'm going to switch. But like you look at the big 10 West and it's just, Northwestern has been the exact same forever. Uh, Purdue offensive friendly, Iowa the same forever, Nebraska the same, Minnesota the same. Like it, it really is something that I had not even really thought about. But the game I have circled is that it, it's in East Lansing. Like that is my biggest intriguing game for Wisconsin in the regular season. Is uh, Ohio State? Yeah, that's an obvious one. But like, I don't. No offense to the all the Wisconsin fans that uh, tune into this edition of the podcast. I don't see that being a win. <laughs> I don't see that going Wisconsin's way, but we'll see. But Michigan State, that's an interesting one. Like, I want to see how Wisconsin uh, fares against Mel Tucker in year two. I, I'm very uh, curious to see how that one goes. And if that offense that Mel Tucker put together last year is sustainable with all their losses. Very, very intriguing uh, to see what happens there. Because I still will posit that Mel Tucker is not long for East Lansing, unfortunately, for Spartan fans. Like I you know, there's there's some juice to that game too. That was a yeah. a great mini rivalry back when Brett Bielman was there. Um, yeah. they they had some great games and then that kind of fizzled out. Now Jalen Berger's there, former Wisconsin tailback. Uh, you mm. know, two or three people from Wisconsin's recruiting department, including Saeed Khalif, who headed Wisconsin's recruiting department, is now at Michigan State. Um, so there are some storylines there that is interesting. I, I don't, I'm not saying there's bad blood there, but there are plenty of things hmm. you can think about, you know, in the in the weeks leading up to that game. So that yeah, that is an interesting one. They they seem to be on the uptick with Mel Tucker there, who has Wisconsin connections, and uh, yeah, it, that should be a good game. You know, probably a game Wisconsin is going to have to win uh, if they want to have those Big Ten title aspirations, or you know, I guess. You know, every team right now feels like they could play in the playoffs lately. So maybe that maybe that playoff conversation as well. Maybe, maybe. John McNamara, what can the good folks check out from you and the the great folks over there at Wisconsin Rivals? Yeah, you know, tons of uh, spring camp coverage right now. We're going to be able to get into um, every spring practice from here on out. So I think we have 10 left. So, you know, tons of stuff coming up there and always recruiting. You know, got a story coming later tonight. Uh, on a receiver that Wisconsin offered on a visit today. So a lot of spring camp and a lot of recruiting that you can find at the site right now. 
That's good. I'm not allowed. I should never like I'll never go to like personal like uh, media stuff like that. I, I just I would get kicked out immediately at a Tennessee spring practice where like I'm just losing it at uh, Taven Jackson doing some fun stuff. Where I'm like that boy Taven, and then they're like, "Hey, you got to go. This is not how this works. This is uh, <laughs> this is not how it works. I I'm not built for that. I'm not built for it." John sure. McNamara, this this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it, and we'll have to check back in again soon. All right, take care. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you again to our wonderful guests, Matt, Kelly, and John for coming on this edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. If you like today's episode and you're not already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a future episode of this podcast. Also, if you already subscribed and you uh, have not already done so and you enjoyed today's episode, uh, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you get your podcasts. Uh, share it out. Let other people know why they should check out this show too, why you like it. Here on the Blue Wire Pod Network, we're stacked. We've got wide receiver one, Chris Carter. We've got uh, spinsters with uh, Jordan Liggins and Haley O'Shaughnessy. Like, it's just a very stacked uh, network here at Blue Wire, the Chris Van Fleet Show. Um, happy to be a part of this network. Um, and yeah, so go check out the other shows if you've not already done so at bluewirepods.com. Um, but yeah, chasemspodcast.com, sports renaissance man. That's me, sports renaissance man.substack.com, youtube.com. Yeah, we're on YouTube. Watch this very program, Chase Thomas Podcast. Never miss an episode on the video front. And uh, follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. New episode tomorrow because. Yeah, this is a daily podcast and new episodes coming your way every single day. Thank you as always. Go balls. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.